This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Wednesday to you. Is it Wednesday? Man, I'm getting old. Uh, great uh, show for you today. Holy cow, are we... Uh, something's going on in D.C. The They're circling the wagons. D.C. comics, like Batman and Superman? No, like uh, District of Columbia. Capital oh, that, that of the DC. United States. That D.C. Washington, D.C., Donald Trump uh, may be in some pretty deep water now. Apparently you can't, you know, push, suggest to the FBI director that he drop some investigations. And uh, Director Comey is now saying that that happened, that Donald Trump asked him to let it go, just let it go, the Flynn investigation so it's starting to get crazy back there. Even now, uh, some pundits are even saying, you know, this is this is Watergate-like. So, boy. Not according to Joe Cannon. Yeah. We had him on the show Monday, and he said, this is not like Watergate. Well, except uh, Joe Cannon didn't have this latest information. But he was there in D.C. Oh, so that's, it was all going make, down. Yeah, that would make it different because you're there. But apparently – it's going to get crazy now. And uh, now uh, Jason Chaffetz, who's uh, over the House um, Judiciary Committee, the House, uh, what are they? Some One of the House committees is saying, I want to have the documents. I want to have all the documents from Comey, the memos he wrote after meeting with President Trump, because apparently Comey took uh, fastidious notes after those meetings, trying to remember everything that was said to him. I thought Chaffetz was on his way out, though. He is. Maybe Trump was the one that convinced him to leave. Maybe maybe Trump was – yeah, maybe that's what's happening is the only one listening to Trump now is Chaffetz, who's going to leave Congress and maybe go to Fox News, for heaven's sakes. So anyway, we've got uh, – we'll do a little update on that, get you some information about that in- interesting headline. Uh, plus, we're going to be talking about empathy. You know, a lot of people are starting to push back against empathy because they they look at it and they're like, okay, so the Democrats have all this empathy for all of these people that they care about, but they don't take care of their own. And the Republicans have all this care and empathy for people that are their own, but they don't take care of anyone else. So is empathy – just has it has it passed its prime? Is it time to no longer care about anyone else? So you're suggesting care about nobody. That's the well, shove a, everybody off the table. A lot of only research. You. A lot of researchers are saying let's be real about what's happening because some people are empathic globally, but not locally, and some are empathic locally but not globally. Mm. Mm. So we will talk about does empathy actually have limits? And are we really calling empathy something that we should maybe be calling it something else, compassion? And what do you do to intercede? Do you just use logic? So then we just go with what's logical? Logic. Yeah. So great discussion about empathy coming up. Uh, it's, it'll actually it's, – it's fascinating because there's some interesting truth and in I think everything we're saying. And yet I probably wouldn't say empathy's you know, old school. Empathy's essential. It's a part of being a human being, and we got to look at how we use it. 
and where we use it. So we'll get to that fun discussion straight ahead. Plus, we've got to be celebrating a very important day today, World Baking Day for those that bake, but more importantly, Pack Rat Day. Everybody loves somebody Yeah, they do. Even a pack rat. No, this is not the rat pack. Oh, it's not rat pack day? Yeah, it's pack rat day. Yeah, sorry. You thought rat pack. I'm just going to keep... This is what I have prepared, though. But today's the day you not only celebrate the hoarder, but the one that lives with the hoarder that has to put up with all the hoarding. It's a serious condition. And everybody needs somebody to love the hoarder. Oh, yeah. And the non-hoarder. Just the cohabitator hoarder. That's why I like this song. The cohabitant with the hoarder. Everybody. It's all inclusive. It means everybody. Um, The funny thing about the pack rat is it's it's almost the worst time to be alive if you're a pack rat. It's actually the heyday of pack ratting. Because now we have, in fact, we have one going in, in my city. Beautiful little piece of property that's now turning into a storage unit company. To, to facilitate more pack ratting. A, we can't throw things away. Can't, can't throw minimize it away. our lives, yeah. So we just keep purchasing, and then we have to keep renting units to put our purchased items in. <sighs> just build a shed in your backyard. I would have rather had Rat Pack Day. Better music. A lot better music. Pack Rat Day. But again, they're people too, and they need help. So, like, if you have a truck, volunteer. Yeah, like you had a truck back in the day. Yeah, I helped a lot of pack rats. That's what I keep telling my kids. My our little beater car for our teenagers is a truck, and they hate it. And I'm like, but it allows you to serve more people. And they're like, exactly. That's why we hate it, Dad. Not good kids sometimes. Anyway, they're great. Uh, so we'll get to all of this excitement. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? U.S. Secret Service said on late Tuesday that it had lifted a security lockdown put into effect at the White House after a person tried to jump over a bike rack used as a barrier along the north fence of the uh, the property where Donald Trump lives and works. The suspect was in custody. The, sec- the security office also had this on Twitter. Why are they using a bike rack to uh, secure the north fence? Doesn't seem like a secure the way White to... White House. Yeah, yeah okay. seems kind of interesting. Authorities searched in the Bahamas Tuesday for an overdue plane with four people from the U.S. on board, including a prominent New York businesswoman and her two children. The U.S. Coast Guard said the twin-engine plane was east of the Bahamas on Monday when the air traffic control in Miami lost radar and radio contact with the plane. It was en route to Puerto Rico, never made it to the destination um, along the uh, east coast of, or the mm-hmm. northeast coast of Florida. Debris and an oil slick was spotted, but authorities were still trying to determine whether it came from the missing plane, according to the Coast Guard. So that's an ongoing story. At least one person died, 15 others injured when a tornado hit a mobile home park Tuesday near a small town in western Wisconsin. The uh, National Weather Service reported the touchdown in the area just after 5.30 p.m. The Wisconsin tornado was part of a huge swath of the plains and upper Midwest threatened with severe weather. The uh, area stretches from the Texas Panhandle through Oklahoma, western Texas, Nebraska, Iowa, into Minnesota and Wisconsin. So the entire center section of the country. <laughs> Another tornado struck in rural uh, area just west of o- in western Oklahoma, leaving damage in its wake but no immediate reports of injuries. Other tornadoes in western Oklahoma and the, the Texas Panhandle have downed power lines, utility poles. So, you know, tornadoes. Man, alive. 
they're happening. And finally, a 37-year-old uh, by the name of Brandon Vesmar of Austin is using a round rock or suing a round rock woman for texting during their movie date last week. <laughs> He's seeking $17.31, the price of the ticket, oh. to see a 3D screening of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yeah, that makes sense. Vesmar told the newspaper that his date began texting about 15 minutes into the movie. According to a petition filed in small claims court, his date activated her phone at least 10 to 20 times during the movie until he asked her to stop. When he suggested she go outside to text, the woman departed the theater altogether and left him without a ride home. Vesmar said that the woman subsequently refused to reimburse him for the ticket, and his petition described her behavior as a threat to civilized society. Hmm. The woman claims that she only texted in the theater two or three times. Now, why $17.21? Is that for the, the price d- of the ticket? Well, the popcorn movie ticket isn't was seventeen dollars. It's a three D screening. Oh, it's a three D screening with a reclinable chair that massages, and you. They had popcorn. I think he's fully in his rights here. You know what, though, she's probably going to get an aneurysm trying to text while wearing those three D glasses. Oh yeah, good point. That's not. You know, I think this has bigger problems than her texting. Right. I think she just disrespected the fact that she was watching Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Didn't put her phone away respecting the cinematic brilliance that right. was happening. I mean, this is America. Right. Man, phone away. if you could sue anybody that you were on a date with that was texting, that oh. would that would be so much money. No, but you could sue for so many other things. Mm. Bad breath, you know, bad conversation. Right. Taking taking someone on to the first uh, on their first date to a movie. Poor excuse for getting out of a date. Yeah. Oh, my roommate needs me. When you say, sure, order anything on the menu, and so they order the most expensive thing, how rude. How rude is that? So apparently if this goes through, I, I'm gonna, I have a feeling this will go all the way to the Supreme Court. Very well. Yeah. Didn't get a kiss at the end of the date? Yeah. Hello. I took you to Guardians of the Galaxy 3D. I have a story coming up later in the show. A kid burped in class. Oh, boy. Went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court had a decision on it. Was it a burp? They decide? Well, it wasn't that. Oh. It was how he was punished. Oh, yeah. So they overpunished the burper. We'll see. Boy. They gave him a lifetime supply of Gas-X. Gas-X. This segment brought to you by Gas-X. Um, so I had an inch of snow at my house today. So did I. What? That's crazy. Yeah. I woke up, had no idea. thought, boy. I and had to it, go back in and change my... Uh, Get your galoshes off. Well, I had like a little fleece jacket. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work. Mm-mm. It's snowing. So I went back in and got my more snow gear type yeah, clothing. I saw it. And your dog sled. That my was dog nice. sled, yeah. I parked right next to your dog sled. You got to prep for all weather. So what do you think of Trump? I mean, that's it's a big deal when the director you just fired has apparently written memos detailing well, everything that was said in meetings with him. In, in this, that was the situation on Tuesday. Monday it was the... Russians in the Oval Office, right? right? Yeah, Russians well, yeah, telling Putin, secrets. Vladimir Putin is now saying they have full transcripts of that conversation. So if you'd like to see them, he would gladly help you with that. Yeah, well, Vlad is nice that way. Then on, that was out of the Washington Post. Tuesday, you get the New York Times yeah. with their Com- – uh, Comey's got these documents. And then and now Chaffetz perked up like, okay, I'm going to want to see those. Yeah. The White House puts out a statement yesterday – Denying that uh, Trump asked anything about the Michael Flynn investigation. 
Right. But no one signed the document. It's which, anonymous. Which all of this makes sense, too, because remember, Trump made the assertion that, boy, I hope there aren't tapes of all of this stuff. Right. And then they wouldn't confirm or deny whether they can actually yeah. record anything in the Oval Office. It's crazy. But this document comes out yesterday where um, they're denying that President Trump asked Comey to step away from the Michael Flynn investigation. Yeah, just walk away. And the Let document comes out, but nobody from the – usually you, a document comes out and it's from the press secretary or the yeah. chief of staff oh, or yeah. Bannon or somebody. And it, there's no name attached to it. And the problem they're seeing is if Trump keeps doing this, there might lead to an investigation and then people in the White House will have to lawyer up mm-hmm. because – they're involved in the paper trail of how this information is being disseminated, yeah. and they're all like, "Wait a second, well, what are we doing?" Well, that's why. So, that's why it's. But this know. all might die because Trump's going to have a foreign trip here pretty soon. Oh yeah, so it'll all go away when he's on. And all he's pretty much taking every aid that works for him. <laughs> they're all going on the plane with him. Everybody's going. Yeah, to Saudi Arabia. Like, I saw a name of thirteen people that are going to go on this this trip with him. Interesting. With the idea that people like to stay close to the president because that's how you stay in the loop because well, he's the source of all information. No one else is helping out with. This is – I mean this is – it really isn't a lot of scandal when you think of him being in there for four years. But apparently is he, is he trying to get it out of the way well, all the beginning? Apparently he's only been in there four months though. So It's like 118 days. Boy. He's, he's very efficient in what oh, yeah. he's doing right now. Very efficient. And yet, meanwhile, nobody – again, this is that smokescreen that nobody's paying attention to. Behind the smokescreen, apparently in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats are doing a lot of negotiating on a health care bill. Says who? Right, because there's those, the 13 – And apparently first, like making some ground. The 13-man committee that is – All men. Deciding health care. Well, th- yeah. But apparently they're talking, well, which sure. is like the first time. Yeah. They've crossed the aisles to talk for like 10 years. Well, the Senate is more of a deliberative body. Yeah, much more of a They're deliberative. They're the upper chamber, as they like to say, as they shame the House. Speaking of upper chambers. Yes. It sounds like a chamber of secrets. Well. Speaking of upper chambers, um, I have surgery scheduled. Ooh. For the old gallbladder removal. Nice. I'm not going to tell you when. Really? We're going to keep it a secret? I'm just going to surprise you. We're going to do a 4.30 a.m. text again. Yeah, they, they said they found hey, out. Hey, by I, the way. Yeah, I have gallstone. <laughs> do you notice it's always about 5 in the morning, 4 yeah. in the morning? Yeah. That's, well, that's when it kicks in. Right. I understand. Um, I do rant and rave around here like, why didn't he tell us at 9 o'clock last night we could do something about it? Because at 9 o'clock I was eating the cake yeah. that, that caused me <laughs> like, I feel to have the 5 a.m. blues or greens if we're talking literally. Hmm. You right there, Jeff? Okay, just so, a little too much information. Yeah, I know you're, you get a little gaggy. Uh, today we're going to be talking about empathy. Many people are starting to, to suggest. Many researchers are suggesting that empathy is maybe, you know, n- not an effective means of managing our decision making. Should we engage empathy? It, does it have its limits? Well, we have a researcher that's been studying empathy. From every direction you can imagine. And honestly, I think we're going to find out incredible principles still. And yet uh, there might be some interesting ways to look at it that might enhance all of our lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Empathy is the ability we have to understand and share feelings with each other. But is empathy outdated and overhyped in today's world? Is empathy problematic? Is it limited? You know, and is it facilitate some bias uh, in one way or another? Here to help us understand some of these harder questions about empathy is Daryl Cameron. Uh, Daryl is an assistant professor of um, in the Department of Psychology and Research um, in the Rock Ethics Institute at Penn State University. Daryl Cameron, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. You bet. Now, I mean, empathy, I don't see, I mean, it's it just is people being nice, right? I mean, we're just all caring for each other. So how is there a controversy about empathy having value? So, so there's there, one way to start approaching this is to think about distinguishing uh, what we would call empathy uh, from something like sympathy or compassion. So when you said caring for someone else, that uh, psychologists would often des- describe as compassion, hmm. kind of being motivated to, to care for and attend to the suffering of other people. Empathy, in the way that it, many psychologists and many critics go after empathy, uh, is more of this kind of resonating with what other people are feeling. So if I see someone in pain on the side of the road, I may also feel pain and sadness and kind of share in their suffering. On the other hand, so that's kind of a feeling with, uh, colloquially speaking, whereas compassion is more of this feeling for, where you, you kind of, you're motivated to go out and help. And the critics, so to speak to your question, the empathy critics suggest that this emotional empathy where you're kind of contagiously catching the emotions of others they say it's problematic because it empathy is, as they put it, a narrow spotlight. It it uh, is really uh, easily attuned to the suffering of cute individual victims, um, but not really calibrated for the kind of large scale, large scope uh, crises that the world faces. Interesting. And so, I'm oh, sorry. The, the critics they they just they point out that empathy has a, a variety of limitations. Um, and for that reason, should be considered uh, ethically questionable. So I guess the idea is you can have empathy, but does empathy is is empathy less likely to enact action? So um, yeah, I mean that, that's a good empirical question. I think that uh, there are studies showing that if you get people to feel empathy, if you get people to resonate with the experiences of others, it can in some contexts lead people to engage in more pro-social action. Um, but there is other work. That, I mean, there, there, so the, the work that the critics are, are alluding to, so, you know, one classic effect is that if I show you an image of kind of a single identifiable victim like baby Jessica or, you know, other, if you think of uh, Harambe, the, the gorilla from a couple of years ago, you know, identifiable single targets in need those are really powerful and evoke strong empathic responses. But if you read about hundreds of thousands of people who are suffering from a natural disaster or uh, political conflict and so forth, uh, that, that those numbers don't seem to trigger our, our empathic emotions in quite the same way. It's so true. Interesting. Right, like Syria, not to interrupt, but like in Syria, we, we've heard of the war going on there forever. We've, he- we've seen thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, um, immigrants or uh, what do they call them? Refugees running from the country, trying to get out of the country. But then it takes the one picture of the little boy in the back of the ambulance 
to invoke a real sense of feeling. Exactly. Uh, so that's a perfect example. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic, practically speaking, uh, but it, it does illustrate this psychological phenomenon. Um, there's actually some recent work showing that after the publication of, uh, there was a few years back, uh, it was an image of a boy who had really sadly drowned trying to escape Syria. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of controversy over its publication. And uh, there was some work showing that after that image was published, there was a spike in Google search trends for information relating to the Syrian refugee crisis and uh, an increase in donations to the Red Cross. So again, this the single, like the, the powerful evocative image of the one person can really powerfully trigger our empathy. But just learning about the statistics, the thousands of people, is not as effective. And so, and so that kind of bias um, in empathy is what has motivated some to claim that, well, look, empathy, you know, shouldn't necessarily be an ethical guide. That's Interesting. Argument, Interesting, because it's not whole. It's... It's specific and uh, I guess, right. yeah, is that the word you use? Specific, identifiable to one scenario. It's not a universal, so it wouldn't be a, be- it wouldn't be a good guide. Right. And, and, and another related bias that is often discussed is that empathy is often reduced for people who are dissimilar to us in some way. So that could be in terms of race, gender, nationality, political values. Um, a wide body of work in psychology and neuroscience shows that across a variety of measures of empathy, empathy tends to be reduced for people who are unlike us in some way. Even minimally speaking, if, if, I, if I were to divide people into what are called minimal groups, you know, people who, like, who are, are you know, lumpers versus splitters or who like the color brown versus the color blue, even introducing some very minimal, seemingly meaningless difference is enough to, in some cases, uh, dampen our empathic responses. Hmm. Wow. So again, if we, if we don't want morality to be that way, then that seems like that's a problem for using empathy. And so... so we, that, do we just need... The, do, we, do we just need to use another word, Daryl? I mean, do we just need to use compassion? Or does it... I mean, does it really matter, the term we use? Right. So I think, yes, it does matter. Um, so I think that... I mean, Scientists would suggest that empathy and compassion are different psychological processes, and that um, the claim that empathy critics make um, is that compassion is less susceptible to some of these uh, biases and limits that we've been discussing in relation to empathy. Uh, But I think they would say it is a different process, like compassion is something different than empathy. Hmm. And so, and one thing that um, I've written about in my work is that so we've we've been talking about this argument against empathy that empathy has these limitations and that for that reason it's ethically problematic. Um, in my work, I've kind of challenged that argument a bit, and so I've in much of my empirical work shown that some of these seemingly glitchy kind of biases in empathy, like insensitivity to mass suffering and reduction in response to people who are dissimilar to us that these biases can actually move around. They're not fixed problems with empathy per se. So if you change what people want to feel, if you change uh, their expectations about whether empathy is going to be exhausting or costly and so forth, that can change these biases and kind of remove, and, and in some cases, remove them. 
So really you're saying – I mean that's actually – that's it's an interesting – you're saying empathy is a choice. It's not just this inherent immediate feeling we have, but you can actually adjust the feeling by – or even the choice I guess to choose to go for empathy by just changing the criteria. Exactly. So if you think about empathy kind of like a, like a dial on a radio, so uh, you can adjust the settings based upon what you prefer. And there's a lot of – so the, the kind of thesis of my work that challenges these arguments against empathy is that, well, look, we have the ability to choose where we set the boundaries, the, our expanse of empathy. And maybe, it's, maybe people are misinterpreting what these biases and empathy are all about and what, what causes them. You know, if I, if I pick up the morning paper, for example, and there's a news story about a tragic event across the world that impacts a lot of people, it may not be that I can't feel empathy for that, but instead I'm like, well, look, I don't want to take that emotional burden on me, hmm. and I may choose to read something else that's more uplifting. And that's a, that's a choice. Yeah. And, and it, so... On that, uh, on that approach, it may not be that empathy is, is ethically problematic in the way that its critics describe, but rather we make choices about what we want to feel based upon our own preferences and values and so on. And so really the target of ethical criticism should be those, that are whatever our, our values, our motivations, our goals. It's not really empathy that is the... Real right. Problem. It's uh, that burden is a whole. In- it's a very interesting component of empathy because it's it's one thing to feel the burden of the one and oh, if I could help that little boy in the back of the ambulance in Syria, I would. I mean, we all. That's one. But when then when you say, how are we going to politically solve the Syrian war and crisis, which has been going on for years, which presidents have avoided and dodged and not wanted to deal with. The burden itself changes it. But I guess some of this, too, is just our attention, right? We, if, if empathy is a choice, then, too, and I guess this is what you're saying, it's what we focus on. Um, we could very intentionally focus even a news story more on the plight of the people overall, right? And, and that might invoke more empathy than just a general news story about what's happening. Right. So, I mean, there are, there are plenty of wonderful examples that try to – personalize stories to try to get people more engaged. Uh, one example that I often think of is uh, the Humans of New York uh, social media. Uh, yeah, right. That's on Facebook. You know, where it's individual people with a picture and like a paragraph telling a story, a narrative about part of their life. Hmm. And it's, it's a way to try to just get people more engaged and engrossed. And so certainly like philanthropies and uh, other organizations are aware of some of these interesting features of empathy. And so if we could find a way to get people to be more motivated to engage with rather than avoid, choosing to avoid uh, the suffering of others, uh, it might potentially promote more pro-social action. And I guess the reason you are pushing on this is because we have a morality, right? And most of us don't usually, I guess, deeply evaluate our own morality, but part of the morality is empathy. Part of our moral compass is that empathy. Um, I, I mean, certainly. I mean, going back, you know, centuries, there are philosophers and theologians from a wide variety of, of backgrounds suggest that empathy is a really important moral and ethical virtue. 
And, you know, scientists think that empathy is very important. It's a good skill to have. It's important for us to know what others are feeling. If I know what someone else is thinking and feeling, I can better predict whether they mean me help or harm, uh, what they, and better achieve kind of collective action. And so I think that, yes, for many people, empathy is ethically central. And that's why I think that's why some of these arguments against empathy have received so much attention, because it seems so counterintuitive. It's, right. Well, you're saying empathy isn't part of morality, and, and it's actually, some would claim empathy actually erodes ethics and morality. And so that point is controversial to a lot of people, I think. What would be the, what would be the opposite, um, or what would be another way of making decisions if if we weren't making them out of empathy or compassion uh, I guess logic would be another decision making tool or is another decision making tool right so uh, yes so uh, many of the empathy critics suggest that instead of relying upon emotional states like empathy or compassion we should turn to deliberation logic reasoning uh, kind of utilitarian or consequentialist principles, you know, reasoning to yourself, what would be the action I could take that would maximize the welfare of the most people involved? Huh. And it's a classic, um, it's a classic move that you see rhetorically comparing, you know, emotion against reason. I mean, it goes back centuries. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's reasoning can, in some cases, get us to a more principled, considered outcome. But, um, my, I guess my issue with that from decades of work in psychology and other fields is that reasoning is not necessarily an objective gold standard of truth. Right. There's plenty of work showing that people will reason in motivated ways based upon what they want to, uh, what they want to conclude. Uh, basically, if you, and you see this in a wide variety of, of contexts, be it sports, politics, other places where people can be quite selective in how consistent they are with the reasoning they apply. Yeah, no, and absolutely. So reasoning may have limits and biases, too. Mm. And it's, um, again, it goes to this dualism you were talking about of emotion versus logic, you know, so you're going to use your brain or your heart, which one are we going to use? And in reality, I think what I hear you saying is be careful because, I mean, don't, be careful of even questioning empathy. It's it's still a part of what we're doing. And uh, let's do this. Let's We're talking with Dr. Uh, Daryl Cameron from Penn State University. He's a research associate in the Rock Ethics Institute there and um, a professor, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. We will take a break, come back and continue this journey. We're going to – when we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Cameron about how you – how we can you know strengthen our empathy, understand it, understand its limits – and uh, its strengths and see if we can't maximize it. And for heaven's sakes, you can also maximize logic while you're at it, right? It's not an either-or scenario. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Helping you be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. So how does empathy drive your decision-making, uh, does it? And, and is there is it a limited you know, tool in our arsenal? Um, are there ways to maximize the power of empathy? Does it have its limits? 
Joining us to talk about it is C. Daryl Cameron. He is, again, um, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Research Associate in the Rock Ethics Institute at Penn State University and is the author of an article that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, Does Empathy Have Limits? Um, wonderful article that you can find on theconversation.com. Uh, Daryl, again, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks, thanks again for having me. So is um, when we think of empathy... We we kind of I guess part of the argument is it's limited because empathy tends to be very kind of singularly focused. It's very it's focused more I guess on and something on an identifiable victim or an identifiable situation specific that would would generate the feelings in you. Compassion we would say you might be able to have for a, a, a you know a, a larger problem, kind of more of a. a overarching hum- humanitarian issue? Is that the difference between empathy and compassion? So, so, yeah, it's a good question. So in some of my work, I mean, I actually have shown that, um, and others have as well, that in some cases, if you change what people want to feel, they can show more empathy for larger numbers of people. Hmm. You just got to so go looking for the, it, yeah. You just have to look for it, and you have to you have to look at what people want to feel and change what and look at their preferences and values and so forth. And so, for example, I mean, in the article, I talk about some cases where, uh, well, and you mentioned this before the break. So, do people think they can make a difference in the world? You might think that if you if you if you if you're reading about lots of you know, thousands of people suffering overseas, you may think, well, what difference could I make? It'd be a drop in the bucket. It wouldn't achieve much change. But if you look if you look at people's beliefs that they can make a difference, either measuring it or if you can manipulate that ahead of time, you can change whether people show this insensitivity to mass suffering. And in fact, if you get people to believe that they can make a difference, uh, you can actually uh, nullify this uh, identifiable victim effect. Hmm. And so it suggests that in some cases, empathy could actually be responsive to mass suffering. And for compassion, you know, you asked about versus compassion. Um, you know, critics often point to compassion as this nice alternative to empathy that doesn't suffer some of the same biases as empathy. But actually, I mean, the research shows that compassion shows some of the same biases, like insensitivity to mass suffering, hmm. to the people who are unlike us. And so by the logic of the anti-empathy argument, compassion as well, should be considered problematic. Interesting. Um, I, I see it. Cases, oh, go, no, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say that in both cases, though, I would suggest that empathy and compassion can be flexible, and whether or not they show limitations in response to mass suffering or outgroups, it really does depend upon what, in many cases, what we want to feel. Hmm. So it's flexible. The biases aren't fixed. Well, and I see it when I work with couples the ability to to take the place of another person that you don't necessarily i mean you're married it could be your spouse right but mm-hmm. you're different on this argument you have different positions on the argument but you like you were saying you can intentionally reframe it in a way to to try to see it from their perspective or to try to see it in a different way and it actually and it, it, it to me it is a skill you can learn you can learn to do this with others so why not why not start to master you know our own framing and reframing with empathy it seems like a 
It seems like a powerful way. So instead of like dichotomizing this and making it an, e- an either or argument, whether we should keep empathy or whether it's valuable or not, it seems to make more sense to do what you're suggesting, which is more make choices to to reframe things so that empathy can engage it. Exactly. And I really like that, that framing. Um, so th- I think a, an important way to think about this is that empathy is like, like any skill, like any psychological process. We can use it intelligently uh, with the kind of reframing you're describing, or we could use it kind of crudely and unintelligently. Mm. Um, it might lead to good outcomes in some cases. It might lead to bad outcomes in other cases. And so if you allow that people vary in terms of how intelligently they can reframe empathy, and you can train that, um, it, it changes the ethical implications of this substantially, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you so for example, uh, there's work that shows that if you get people to think of empathy as an incremental skill that they can build, kind of like, you know, developing a musical skill or an athletic skill, if you give people the theory that empathy is a, is, a, is a skill you can build incrementally over time, they show uh, more empathy in response to a wide range of people. Hmm. And so encouraging people to think about, it's not just, it's not dumb emotion versus wonderful reason. Yeah. I totally disagree with that dualism. It's more empathy can be used good or bad or poorly or well. And let's try to think about the reframing techniques we can use to get people to use empathy in, in an intelligent way. That's, and why not, right? I mean, we, we teach people to use logic, right? We teach people the theories of argumentation and other theories of, of decision-making. So why wouldn't we also, you know, I, but I guess part of this goes back to the evolution where, you know, I know you've mentioned Paul Bloom in some of your work, and um, he has a quote that we are not psychologically constituted to feel toward a stranger as we feel toward someone we love. But I guess it, you can, right? You can if you just open your skills to it and your mind to it. Yes. So, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, of course, you know, evolutionarily speaking, it would make sense for us to have preferences towards our kin, towards yeah. people who are related to us in some way. And I guess one way to think about that is that we might have a slight tug towards those who are similar to us, who share, who share our family bonds or group bonds, but that doesn't mean that empathy has to be that way. Even if there is a slight kind of preference there, kind of default towards uh, those who are like us in some way, yeah. um, you can still choose to expand your empathy outward. And I, I guess my, my position both as a scientist and then as someone who writes about the ethical implications of the science, is that to think that we just can't, is, it represents a certain kind of, um, I guess, fatalism mm. that uh, well, exert the effort, and maybe if you yeah. make choices differently, there's more possibility there. But if, you, but if you have the theory that we simply cannot feel empathy for mass suffering or for outgroups, it could create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, lead, if you think empathy is a limited resource that has to be rationed, so to speak, then you might very well restrict yourself and not feel as much empathy as you might be able to. Yeah. What Do you have suggestions on how we can broaden our empathy um, or maybe expand our framing of situations so that we can be more empathic 
to more, you know, maybe global issues instead of just singular individualized ones? Yes. So, I mean, there's a variety of techniques that have been tested. Uh, one approach uh, that I alluded to a little bit earlier was just thinking about whether you can make a difference. I mean, part of, part of the reason why people might disengage from empathy for large-scale crises is that they just don't think they can do much. Hmm. But, if, but the research shows that if you get people to believe they can actually have an impact and think about ways they could have an impact, that can motivate them to approach and cultivate empathy rather than avoiding it. Um, but also, if you think about um, just trying to take the perspective of other people, uh, so there's work by colleagues of mine who, if you get people to try to, uh, and alluding back to what you were saying earlier with uh, with couples, if you if you encourage people to try to take the perspectives of others to think about their their experiences, that's been shown to be an effective way of counteracting these kinds of intergroup uh, biases and empathy. Hmm. And again, it's so interesting because we we can divide somebody that we've chosen to marry that we want to be with, but we can actually turn them into an enemy. You know what I mean? As if they have a gun pointed Mm -hmm. at us ready to destroy us. And so that's why it's so interesting about at some point, I guess you have to believe in this fatalism or the determinism that you can't do any of this or you can. (laughs) And if you can, if you believe you can make a difference, apparently you can make a difference. I always ask couples, what's it like to be married to you? And um, and have people actually go into your own head and think about while you're looking at your wife, what's it like to be her married to you? Oh, she's so lucky. But if you actually get into it, you you might start to have a little shift. And I guess that shift then creates the empathy. And I guess what does the empathy in the end do when we have? Is it just the feeling and the emotion that drives us to do what? Yeah. So um, the empathy. So both empathy and compassion have been examined in relation to like a wide variety of, of outcomes within psychology. So things like cooperation with other people, uh, charitable donation, uh, outgroup tolerance, um, and so on. And you know there there are, there is work showing that you know both kinds of emotion, both kinds of emotions, empathy and compassion, uh, can in some cases, not necessarily all cases, but in some cases, uh, positively relate to these kinds of outcomes. But, you know, I do think that one interesting difference between empathy and compassion is that you could empathize with someone, but not want to help them. So I can mm-hmm. empathize with, um, so I'm a sports fan. Uh, you could, I, as a Na- Washington Nationals baseball fan, I could empathize with the suffering of, um, let's see, the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah. Um, hopefully you have no Phillies listeners. <laughs> We have a few, I'm sure. (laughs) That's all right. But you can empathize with it and not, and still be okay with them losing. Exactly, and and not and not want to like to care for for, or be pro socially motivated. So usually, I mean, some usually we when we resonate with others' experiences through empathy, compassion follows in sequence, and then we want to do something about their suffering to, to, to care for them. But it may be that compassion in as much as it's more of a pro-socially outward-focused kind of caring emotion, may be more likely to uh, produce positive, socially valued outcomes. Hmm. 
Well, we we definitely need more of it on this crazy ball of uh, mud. Uh, well, we appreciate you, Daryl. Thank you for your great work. Keep it up and uh, keep studying empathy there at Penn State University. You, you know, you wouldn't think that empathy could be so complicated, and yet you put some PhDs on it with some incredible uh, brains and research abilities, and all of a sudden you figure out that there's a lot behind it. And and it's important to recognize it as a choice, and it's super important, it seems like, to recognize that um, it's it's a skill that can be grown, and as you grow it, it, it doesn't have to be this limited resource. It's like a, you're, gonna, you're going to run out of empathy. You, you, can, you can not run out of it. You can intentionally exercise empathy in every situation you run into. But it's a choice. It always is. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Um, When we talk about empathy... Um, I and I, I work a lot with couples about how, some of the skills behind empathy. So let's just get again our our jargon straight, our our vernacular here. Empathy would be the ability to get out of your path, your feeling, your emotion, your experience, and to get within the path of another. So to go take the place of another and understand. From their frame of reference, by listening to them, by seeing them, by hearing them, by noticing what they're going through, try to understand what they're going through from their frame of reference. Sympathy is a different emotion. And notice we didn't talk about sympathy with Daryl Cameron, but sympathy would be if I've had similar feelings. So, oh, no way. Your mom died. My mom died. Oh, we're both sad because our moms died. Um, Having a similar pathos is is nice too, right? But most of us in life, it, it's easier to have sympathy for somebody that you have similar identification with and feelings for. The big step, I think, in humanity that takes us to a completely different level as human beings is the ability to get out of ourselves and into the other. And what's amazing is the more you understand you, I, I truly believe it is the gateway to understanding others. The more you understand your worries, your idiosyncrasies, your insecurities, the more you are self-aware and really think about life, um, about your life, I think the better you are at being able to also get into the role of another. Like, think about it. What, what would it feel like to miss the game-winning free throw, you know, and – Blow it. So have you ever in your life had an experience where you absolutely had the chance to be the hero and you blew it by going to that space in you and then trying to understand it from another person's perspective, you can become feeling. And I know a lot of people don't want to become feelers because it's just so soft and squishy. But the reality, I think, of our lives, that's where, that's where life is good. That's where life is important is because you've suffered the pain of the missed free throw, it helps you also suffer and, and experience, you know, the game-winning missed free throw in an NCAA tournament. It makes life more rich. It also makes it the day that the, you make the free throw – and others make the free throw, it even makes it more special because you know how low it could have gone. So 
There's something powerful, I think, about empathy. I challenge all of us to, to pick up our games, especially in this divisive culture we're living in, um, where politics seems to be the only way we judge everything. And in reality, it's not. It, it's irrelevant. I've said this a million times. We're one natural disaster away from being all on the same page for about a week, right? And as soon as it happens, everyone amazingly comes together, kind of like you saw on 9-11. And then immediately we eventually get back into our heads and start stirring the pot again. So be the change. Uh, Gandhi used to say it. You must become the change you seek in the world. If you want more empathy out there, will you be the carrier? You carry it. Go infect everybody with a little empathy. Can't hurt. Just, you know, try it. That's uh, the first hour of the program. Stick with us. More coming ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, my dear friends, to uh, the Matt Townsend Show. It is, of course, Pack Rat Day, and we are celebrating it with excitement. Today is the day Jeff is going to continue. I think he's moving into his third cubicle now. Who can take a sunrise? Yeah. A little Sammy Davis Jr. My third cubicle? Yeah. Because you're a pack rat. You keep moving. Oh, yeah. You got to keep moving you, and you just keep leaving little trails. I think you keep thinking this is the rat pack day. It is the pack rat day. Isn't that just another way of saying rat pack? No, no, no. Oh. The the pack rat would be the one that just keeps everything they've ever owned. Every magazine, every newspaper, every article. So now we're tracking the movements of rats. No, it would it, humans can be pack rats. And so today we're not necessarily celebrating the pack rat. We are just What have you got against the rat pack? He's not getting this, Terry. He's it's not sinking in. Can you next break, take him aside and try to, you know? No. Okay. There are certain forces in the building that like that element of the show. Okay. The element where he doesn't get what we're talking about, that element? Yeah. Can you do a little like uh, John Madden? Is that his name? John Madden. Like chalk talk Play type thing? chalk talk and like walk him through the difference between a rat pack I, and I a don't, pack I rat. don't know if the effort would... Uh, be fruitful i think it would end up in the same place i think okay. he doesn't want to do it because he likes sammy davis jr not really he does though he have you he does if you listen to the music he's playing in his car you know it's a lot of sammy davis jr although i will say he prefers the version Ray Ray. he prefers the film version of this song really does he yeah from willy wonka and the chocolate factory yeah Hey, There's no shame in that. I have the Willy Wonka soundtrack. Here's a question that it just dawned on me, but now I can't remember what it says. Um, you know how people put those crazy little, speaking of pack rats, they put those little, like they'll find a um, a cover, a surround, I don't know what they call it, for your license plate. Like a little saying that goes around your oh, license plate. Yeah, yeah, plate. the license plate frame, yeah. Do you guys have any of those? <laughs> I mean, I know Terry has yeah, I do. a license plate surround. What, what is your It's a say? license plate frame. Frame. Yeah. What does it say? Until the last brain cell dies. 
So what's happening until the last brain cell dies? What are you doing? It's up to interpretation. Go figure it out. It was a Mountain Dew commercial. The guy, like, opened the Mountain Dew. He drank it. And he said until the last brain cell dies, and then he jumped out of an airplane because he was parachuting. And okay. it just hit me as – Did he die? No, he just parachuted out. But it just hit me as, like, that is just over the top for no reason. But is it Sammy and, Davis Jr.? No. Until the last some, brain cell it's dies? It's just some guy. But as he did it, I was like, that's just completely out of line because I think that's – and they only aired it a few times. I, they may have got some pushback that maybe yeah. that was a little too much. But I thought it was exactly opposite of everything that I present as a, as a human being. So I put it on my car. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's great. The looks I get from people as they drive by sometimes where you can see when they review like looking at it and yeah. they drive by to see who's driving. They're like, what? Because the Rat Pack, they were also known for partying hard. Yes. And uh, you, some of them did lose brain cells. They did. Quite a few. So I was wondering if that had any – if you were paying homage no. to Sammy Davis. <laughs> just, just have a, an odd license plate frame. Do you have a license plate frame? Mine actually says until the first brain cell dies. Okay. That's a different one. Haven't seen that one. <laughs> it's kind of strange. Okay. So today we will um, – we will continue celebrating Rat Pack Day, Pat Rack Day, I mean, not Rat Pack, which we'll keep using the music from the Rat Pack. I mean, not using it, but we've got more sharing it. Um, also, I, a really wonderful story from a well-known blogger and uh, writer, Christina uh, Kuzmik will be joining us, broken but not worthless. She tells the story about how she fell into this gaping hole of depression and funk. She was in a funk. And she's going to teach us how she got out of it. It's a pretty powerful story. And really, I think it is a pathway for everybody. They could, every one of us could follow the same pathway, find out what we're good at, and offer it to the world. Powerful stuff uh, there that I think will lift some hope. And also, just as we're celebrating pack rats, if you happen to live with one, just know that we're here for you. This is a good show that might help you Gain the energy, the skills, the tools you need to help keep the relationship alive and maybe sometimes get someone the help they need as well. All of that ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on, my friend? The WannaCry ransom virus that has been sweeping the globe over the last week or so has been discovered on an IP address corresponding with a U.S. Army research computer, making it the first known U.S. government device affected by this virus. Oh, boy. Which could be seen as a good thing, because the rest of the world's having problems with it, but our systems are not. But at the same time, now, maybe we're exposed. Earlier Monday, the White House Homeland Security Advisor Thomas Bossert claimed that as as of today, no federal systems are affected. But the IP address was observed communicating with the hacker server May 12th, indicating that the computer was successfully infected with the ransomware last week. Want to cry a virus that locks an infected computer until the owner agrees to pay a ransom to hackers? began infecting computers on May 12th, quickly spreading to over 300,000 devices. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to revive a civil rights lawsuit against a New New Mexico police officer for arresting a 13-year-old boy who burped repeatedly in, uh, in class, disrupting the course of the class, a case that has raised questions about police conduct in school settings. The justices refused to hear an appeal by the boy's mother of a lower court ruling in favor of uh, Albuquerque officer Arthur Acosta that granted him qualified immunity, a legal defense that protects certain public officials from suits as long as they did not violate a clearly established law or constitutional right. Justice Neil Gorsuch did not take part in, in uh 
considering whether to take up the case. Before joining the Supreme Court in April, Gorsuch was part of the three-judge federal appeals court panel in Colorado that previously ruled two to one in favor of the police officer. Huh. Kid was burping in class. He was disturbing class. Yeah, but you gotta, you can't have that. So the teacher calls the the in in school cop, and he shows up and arrests the thirteen year old. See, this is the problem, right? Yeah. I would have just, uh, if I were the teacher, I would take my phone, film the kid doing it, and then just send it to his mom. Yeah, have but what if she? What if she's a burper? <laughs> you know, then what? She learn. He learns from the best. <laughs> so you get these odd stories that end up at the Supreme Court. So Unbelievable. Women in their early 30s are for the first time having more babies than younger moms in the U.S., according to new data released from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. According to health experts, the shift was caused by more women choosing to wait longer to have kids, as well as a steady national drop in teen births. Now the birth rate for women in their 30 to 34 age group is about 103 103 births per 100,000 women. For women ages 25 to 29, it's 102 per 100,000 women. The average age when women have their first child is 28. The overall birth rate was down to about 62 births per 100,000 women ages 15 to 44. Bill Albert of the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy said teens are now growing up with fewer and fewer peers getting pregnant. We always talk about peer pressure as a negative, but it can be a force for good, he said. Yes, it can be a force for good. It can. So Look at how we're straightening Jeff out. No, yeah, just slight shaming and he feels better. An itty bitty bit of shame with it. Hmm? And finally, sometimes you put something out into the universe. Sometimes the universe throws it right back at you. If only there was a word for that. Anyway, <laughs> Chanel, you know, Chanel, the oh, perfume. Oh, you mean Channel? Yes, it's Channel. But Chanel is offering fire. For, uh, they're taking fire from social media and activists after including a $1,325 boomerang in its collection of new spring and summer accessories. Really? This according to the BBC. Beyond the people pointing out that it spends, uh, how ridiculous it would be to spend more than $1,300 on a boomerang. Uh, members and supporters of Australia's indigenous community are accusing the luxury brand of cultural appropriation because they have no connection to a boomerang. So why are they selling something like that? Right. When it's it's their Hey, it's our cultural icon. Along with boomerangs, the company's also selling beach paddles and tennis rackets for thousands and thousands of dollars a piece if you're interested that way too. Huh. So if you want a $1,300 boomerang, they have one. I'm good. You're good? You don't need one? I did get a boomerang when I was a kid and never could make it ring. You get one of those Nerf? No, I had a real one from Australia that somebody brought me. And I remember just hucking it, just heaving that bad boy. And I think I landed on the roof. Yeah. Like of my neighbor's house, not my house. Didn't even come back to me. The foam Nerf boomerang was awesome because it would go out and it'd come right back. Wow, really? it works. It works well because they put the three, yeah, sp- what three arms, I guess, on the spindles on instead of the the two boomerangs. It was great. You just you swing it and you could hit your brother and they come back to you. I took a ride on the boomerang at Knott's Berry Farm. I did also, and uh, lunch came back. I think we're yeah, talking pretty, about. Yeah, much. I think we're talking about a different boomerang there. Mm. It's called the boomerang. Yeah, maybe not, not one that you throw. All of those rides at Knott's are pretty much designed to make you sick. I can't go to Knott's Berry Farm without getting sick. I, even thinking right there when you said that, my my glands started salivating in my Well, mouth. would you like me to describe the no, ride for you? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. We're good. We're good. Hey, one of the things, we've been on a ride lately, and I'm trying to figure it out. I, I've, I've delegated it to Jeffrey somewhat, but 
it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Mm. Some of it may be my sickness because I'm in and out right, right. all the time. Um, but the deal is we need more contributors. So I've asked Jeff to find some more contributors. He's been testing out a few. We've talked to um, Bob Moss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is a plant expert that would do plant therapy on the, on the show. He'd do a segment every week where we would listen to a plant. Uh, so far, that's the leading. Really? Uh, that's wow. The, that's the leading contender. Nice. I think number one. And then we talked to a comedian that's an airline comedian. Only works shows up in the air. Because it, it doesn't want his audience to yeah. leave during the act. And he, I think he's a Southwest flight attendant. Or United. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. They can throw their peanuts at him, though. Yeah, they can. Um, and then we had the IT guy that didn't have any knowledge about anything. Mm. But, and it was just fun to listen to how little he knew. Okay. But I just thought that would wear thin. You know? mm-hmm. We're already doing that a lot, listening to a lot of stuff that nobody knows. And then um, – so we've got another idea, and I'm not sure how this will fly because it's it's cooking. It's a cooking show on the radio, you know. So you lose a lot. You lose a lot of. You lose the smells. You it's, lose. Yeah, it's a very visual. Yeah, cooking's a very visual presentation. Thing. Yeah, and it's sh- all in the storytelling. It's all in the description. Yeah, it is, mm. and um, it's the, the deal is I'm not sold on it, but he's already putting together. His like the sound and the audio for it. It's cooking with Kiko. Kiko is uh, Palakiko Chandler, one of our coaches. I mean, one of our um, producers. I was going to say coaches, but he's one of our producers. Uh, and he's he, already here in the building. He's from Hawaii, so he has a lot of island flair. He likes to make a lot of things with coconut and uh, coconut milk. Um, and so Cooking with Kiko is the show that we're, we're thinking about playing and, and doing. But, Jeff, what have you put together for us? Well, I've given us four different flavors of jingles, if you will. Now, Palakiko and I actually haven't spoken, okay. but I was just told to move forward with these jingles. Okay. So, I didn't know that it would have an island flair to it, so unfortunately none of these jingles will either. Okay. Um, the first one Flareless. is just like a really simple – Sensitive, almost something like you'd hear on uh, Mr. Rogers. And so why are we doing a jingle if we're not sure we're going to do Palakiko segment? Well, because, again, you throw out everything, see what sticks. And this way we'll be prepared because I'm not going to have much. Okay. One, I don't have time to figure okay. out what kind of a show it's so, going to be. So, people, you can listen in. And if you have a favorite, tweet us at, doc, at Dr. Matt Show. We'd love to hear your insights on which of the songs or jingles you like best for Cooking with Kiko if it happens to make it to air. Okay, this one's just a simple, sensitive one. Okay. Cooking with Pella Kiko and Matt Townsend. Hmm. Okay, I didn't like that one. Hmm. That one left a bad taste. I think mouth. maybe that was a little too simple for you. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking for this next one, we have like this big musical production. We bring in some who some is, like can can dancers. Who is the singer on that first one? That she, her voice drove me crazy. Um, so yeah, this one is much more involved. Okay, so we'll go to number a two. Bigger. Now. I think we have a bigger budget if we go with this one. Okay. Better than Dawson's Creek, oh, or even Twin Peaks, oh, and Antiques Roadshow is the world's best food show. It's cooking with Kiko. Hmm. Hmm. 
It's got a lot in that one. Yeah. I mean, they, they covered a lot of ground. It's better than Twin Peaks. Roadshow. Antics Road, Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow and Dawson's Creek. And it's cooking with Kiko. Sounds really good. I think we need to recut that jingle and have you sing it. Yeah, we might want to. Okay. Uh, yeah, this one, imagine this is like a 90s sitcom. It's a little cheesy, but, you know, we're not quite sure who the audience is yet. Okay. So we just want to have – we just so want to so cover the all 90s, 90s version. Yeah. Here we go. Take a little flower, crack open an egg. Don't forget to add some love. Mix it in a pot, and pretty soon you've got the lovable and huggable man. Palakiko. Huh. I think Kiko Palakiko likes that one the best yeah, so he's, far. I, he's wiping a tear off his eye. <laughs> that one, I don't know, that one gave me the willies a little bit. Willies, huh? Wow. So again, we we just want to make sure that we cover all the demographics. Uh, here's our last one. It's I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's a little different. Okay, um, hold on. You might want to back up from your headphones a different, little bit. Different from different from those first three. Okay, that's because the okay. first three were normal. Okay. Okay, here we go. Again, I don't know what type of food show this is going to be, but uh, hopefully this covers the entire spectrum. Yeah. You got a party of 25 coming over. You just don't know what to cook, so you better, better. You better turn on the TV and watch Cooking with Kiko. Hmm. Cooking with Kiko. I think that's going to pull in the younger listeners. Well, and the deaf ones, yeah. Well, they're deaf now. Yeah. That's kind of a hair band, you know, version of the show. And maybe you bring up a good point. People with long hair have no business in the kitchen because then the hair right. gets in all the totally, food. Totally. And, we'll wear a hairnet. Yeah. Got to wear a hairnet. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Cooking with Kiko, um, apparently a show we, won't, we will not be doing. Um, what? No matter how hard we just tried. It's sad. And it would have been – I think it would have been a good show for a couple series. I don't know. Uh, maybe let's just on the way out – Let's, Let's do the first one because it includes you in it. Well, I like the second one. I think it was the one that we were going to have to go with. The big musical number? There yeah. was the simple, sensitive one, the big musical number, the 90s sitcom, and yeah. the uh, hair band. I, I, I think I want to go – if we're going to go big, let's go big. Let's go big stage, big musical. Okay. We'll do it on the way out. So Cooking with Kiko um, – Probably not going to happen, but we have a great jingle. If somebody wants to buy it, uh, just give us a call, one eight five five chat byu We're selling jingles now on the air. At least give him a pilot. Maybe he'll cook something that is so good that you'll want to put the show on. I'm just saying. Maybe we ought to have him try something at home, bring in the remains, and let's we'll test it. The remains? I don't know what we call it. Bring in the <laughs> dish. <laughs> bring in the remains. That sounds like, yeah, that sounds negative. Uh, cooking with Kiko. Um, and again, just a little music. Does this feel right? Better than Dawson's Creek, oh, or even Twin Peaks, oh, and Antiques Roadshow is the world's best food show. It's cooking with Kiko. You know, life is hard. If you haven't noticed, there is no getting around it. But for some reason, it makes us feel better when we learn that we aren't the only ones struggling. 
And one awesome example of this is our next guest, Christina Kuzmich. She's a freelance writer, a blogger, and uh, she's become a YouTube sensation as well with her mom-centric videos about raising children and juggling all of life's challenges. Now she has over 300 million views across media outlets and other websites worldwide. And she's here today to talk about uh, an article she wrote, Broken But Not Worthless, uh, Christina Kuzmich. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I loved this story, this article you wrote. You're so real. And um, honestly, you were in a deep, dark funk. You were depressed and you found a way out. Yes, I was I was newly divorced. I had a two and a three year old at the time and um, did not ask for child support, just kind of wanted to leave with no drama and no court cases and none of that. And um, ended up finding myself almost homeless because of all of that. So I was um, sleeping on the floor. I couldn't even afford a bed. My kids and I shared a little room, and a friend of mine bought them bunk beds so they wouldn't have to sleep on the floor. And it was just, I just sunk into a really deep depression. That's something I really never experienced in my life before. I mean, it's, and you, what I love about your, your site and your work is you, you just kind of jump right in. You, and you share it in such a real way that, I think I'm I'm sitting there and I'm a married uh, man with six kids in Utah and I'm sitting there thinking I totally relate to her. I totally wow. feel like Christina. And again, I didn't know where it was going, but you you were down and you you've got the not the burden, the blessing of the kids, but the reality of the kids are you're not doing this alone. You've got to get these kids through this as well. Is is this something that you find in your writing? Um, does it does it resonate? Is that what you do is just recognize there's universal issues we're all dealing with and we need to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, my theory is that every single person struggles, every single human struggles. And once you become a parent, you know, that struggle in a way multiplies because now you're not just worried about your own, you know, well-being. You're worried about the most important people in your life. And so and a lot of times as we become parents, especially, we're expected to just be perpetually grateful. And, it, you know, I think parenthood is amazing. I feel so thankful and blessed that I was able to have children. I was actually told in college because of some health issues, I wouldn't be able to. Have oh, wow. So the fact that I have three children, I, you know, all natural, I didn't have to worry about getting pregnant. It just happened. is such a blessing. But I think what happens is that a lot of moms feel guilty admitting that they, and dads too, that they don't love every second of it, that Mm -hmm. it gets really hard. And so they have to put on this fake face of, yeah, everything's great. I love it. And so when somebody comes along and goes, you know what? Not loving every moment of motherhood or parenthood doesn't mean you don't love your children. And, you know, it's okay to admit that we all struggle and we all have hard days. I think it just gives people a freedom. Like I, I compare it to, you know, you feel like you're drowning in stress and someone finally gives you a chance to take a deep breath and go, it's okay. It's mm. okay. It's so true. Um, and, but by, by mentioning it, by you mentioning it, and then getting all of the attention and, and the acclaim that you get because of it, I guess you've hit the nerve. I mean, a lot of, and I think some of this is Facebook, social media, because we tend to show only the pretty side. But if we go to your website, com, you see sometimes the not so pretty side. Well, you in a pretty dress, but cleaning the toilet. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, I mean, there, I actually, there's a reality to the whole thing. 
Yeah, I actually, it's funny you mentioned the social media thing, because a few months ago I made a video called um, How to Fake Your Perfect Life on Social Media, and I sarcastically give examples of this is how, you know, you can make your life appear really great and perfect and flawless on social media. And it's these ridiculous examples, you know, where my teenage son won't hug me for a photo, so I take a photo of him with a girl he likes, and I Photoshop my face on her so that I can <laughs> post it. Look, my son loves, you know, it's just, it's over the top ridiculous, but I'm exactly trying to point out what you're talking about is that, you know, we, we, try, we literally exhaust ourselves trying to paint our life into this perfection that it's not instead of going, listen, I'm flawed. My life is flawed. And that doesn't make it bad. It makes it wonderful because we're getting through it and we're making the best of it. And, you know, my opinion is that our struggles and our flaws actually make us much better, you know, realer yeah, people. Yeah, Totally. No, don't you think? And I mean, and again, I think we need leaders like you that are leaders in the industry. And again, you're leading because you resonate and it resonates with people. Then you bring up, I think, another issue like depression and because mm-hmm. depression and it's interesting because the way I, I read your I read your articles is I listen to them. So um, mm-hmm. I just download them to a reader and then the reader talks like Siri to me, my new my my love nice. of my life. And um <laughs> But I, when I hear it and then I hear how well you write and I, you're like – I mean your first sentence in the Broken But Not Worthless article is I was sad, understatement. Mm-hmm. I was depressed, depressed. And then you mentioned the word depressed a dozen times or so. Um, talk about how you got out of – this is just one example I think of what you bring to life. But talk about how you found your way out of depression. Sure. So what I realized after months of just, you know, being in a really bad place was one day it just hit me. I'm completely obsessed with myself, like in a really bad way. I'm obsessed with my misery. And the people, other people that I've talked to that have gone through depression say the same thing. Yep. That's, I mean, I think I write in the article something like I breathe and ate and drank and made out with self-pity. And that's hmm. literally how it felt. I literally, that is all I thought about was my life is horrible. I am miserable. This will never get better. And that's, that's a normal feeling when you're depressed, right? Everything right, is right. doom and gloom. And so I thought, you know, I had this, you know, brilliant thought one day. I don't know if it was brilliant or what. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the only way to get out of that obsession with myself is to, you know, put it towards someone else. I- I'm going to start obsessing uh, you know, over something positive, something else. And so I decided to volunteer and I called up, you know, hospitals and homeless shelters and soup kitchens and got denied from every single place. Yeah. We don't need you to volunteer. That's so sad. Which, which by the way, if you already feel like a, you know, completely worthless loser, Mm -hmm. a volunteer organization denying you to come help, like that's going to take you to a whole nother level. I can't even volunteer. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But the reason they wouldn't take me is that a two and a three year old and I was broke and couldn't afford a babysitter. So I'd have to bring them and you know, you, nobody wants two and a three year old. Right. So, um, so then I'm back again with all these depressed feelings and nobody wants me. You know, I can't even volunteer. And then I started thinking one night, okay, even though I feel worthless, even though I have nothing, is there one tiny little thing I can do that I'm good at? And the only thing which seemed pointless, but the only thing I could think of was I know how to cook a big meal with no money. Like, I can cook a huge meal on a very small budget. And so without even thinking it through, completely impulsively, I sent an email to all my friends in my city, and I said, every Wednesday night I'm going to feed people in my little apartment. And so if you know somebody who's, you know, struggling, who's maybe homeless, if you know someone who, you know, is just lonely, like an elderly man who just lost his wife or whoever, whatever the need is, I will feed people. And, uh, 
And then I talk about an article how that first Wednesday made this big pot of pasta and basically these strangers started showing up <laughs> in my house. And I fed over, I mean, I could cry right now. Every time I talk about it, I get, you know, choked up. But I fed over 30 people um, wow. in my tiny, tiny little apartment, you know, un, on you know, food stamps. And, yes. And there's something so powerful. I, I, I won't forget those images of me handing a plate of food to somebody. By the way, a lot, a, not all these people were poor. A right. lot of these people had more money than me. They just needed company. They just, you know, they needed a home-cooked meal for whatever reason. They were new to town, whatever. And so for me, this girl that's feeling so small and like a loser to be giving something like, look, I have something to offer you. And then, you know, the next day I get emails. Oh, my gosh, that night meant so much. Thank you so much. And I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out going, wow, even when I feel like I have nothing, I still have something to offer. And that was a turning point for me completely. Because I still, to this day, life is way better. Things are, you know, good now. And I still approach my life that way. I'm done focusing on what I don't have and I can't do and all the bad stuff in my life. And even if the list of things I can do and am good at is smaller than that list of negatives, I'm focusing on that small list. And that's what's led me to really enjoy and embrace my life. And you, it's really neat because before it all, you were so motivated, you got it all done. I mean, by the way, Christina, it's absurd, right? Because you don't even have the money to do this. You didn't even have the money. You, You went to the dollar store. To yep. go to go find all of this food and to buy the pasta, and then you put all your money into it, and a half hour before you were terrified, like what if no one shows? What if no one shows? And you open the door at six o'clock and no one's there, and yeah. five minutes later yeah. though they start coming. Yeah, because you have to understand. Think of like a friend that is just in the worst place. Would you ever bring people you know to their house? Yeah, I just thought train wreck. All like my no, they're going to be in. Yeah, all my friends are going to be embarrassed. Like, here's this depressed girl. She's always crying. She's struggling. She's got all these issues. I'm not bringing my friends over there. So I just, I just thought mm. no one was going to show up. But they did. And I guess, too, that that's part of this um, because you, you, you also had a network of friends that got, you know, that Christina, she can cook and this will be a great experience. And you don't know this, I guess, is what you don't know. You don't know what part of it was charity for you. Uh, what part of it was just charity for others, but in the end, mm-hmm. everybody, those that sent people to you knowing it would be good for you, those that sent people to you because they know you would help them, it just, it made everything better. For yeah, a- I mean, one of my best friends um, who actually brought some people that night, that first night, and continued, because I continued doing these for about a year, um, he said to me, you know, we all pretended at the time that this was about, oh, yeah, she's helping these people. We all knew that this was really medicine for you. You needed this. You know, so it was like my friends knew this. Yes, all these people will be helped. Yes, all these people will have a great meal. But this is she needs this to heal herself. Yeah. So they they knew it. You know what? Um, by the way, the whole time I'm reading it, too, I'm thinking what a great lesson for your kids. Because your oh, your kids were involved, you had them serve water, you had them get the napkins. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant, and it, it was a family event. Did what was it like for them? Do you sense? I mean, you know, it's interesting. You know, Mother's Day was just last Sunday, and we were sitting around at dinner. And I'm remarried now, and my husband was like, "Okay, guys, tell mom something you love about her." And you know, I was expecting them to be like, she's funny sometimes, or, you know, I <laughs> yeah. like her meatballs or whatever. 
And they both actually focused on that. And I don't think I even realized how much, not just that story, but obviously, you know, I've continued to do stuff with them where we, how can we think of others? How can we do random acts of kindness? How much that impacts them? You know, you, uh, we have kids and we ask them to do this stuff. And a lot of times they're like, mom, do I have to? You know, that's the reaction we get. Or yeah. I'd rather just play video games than go, you know, hand out sandwiches or whatever, <laughs> whatever the deal is. We get this reaction from them and we don't realize till later. And I didn't really realize till last Sunday how much it actually meant to them and how much it's impacted them. And um, it was just really great to have my teenage son be like, Mom, I, I, I know sometimes you don't even realize how much I remember. And, you know, because he was really young when everything was happening. He, but he's like, I'm, and when I have a hard day, I always think if my mom could get through it, I can get through it. So, I mean, I was, you can imagine I was bawling. <laughs> so I know it's impacted them in bigger ways than I even thought. Did it, do you sense that... Um, it helped you because, you know, a lot of people would think, well, depression, you know, it's a chemical thing and you got to get the meds. And um, how did it help you out of your depression? I mean, in long term, did depression just kind of go away for you? Was it more of a situational thing for you? Well, see, I think depression just comes in so many different forms. And I think there are people that, you know, genetically inherit something or, you know, that just depression runs in their family and that they might need medication. And, you know, for me, I had, I don't know much you know about my backstory, but I grew up in Croatia and a war started there when I was 12. And from 12 to uh, almost 15, when we moved to the States, I spent a lot of nights in basements, you know, trying not to die, basically. So I had gone through heavy stuff before that didn't sink me into a depression. You yeah. know, this was like, I, I knew at the time, like, this is, when I was depressed, it felt permanent. But looking back, I realized, you know, it was this circumstance that, you know, it wasn't something I'd struggled with before. And so for me, this was, you know, this was my way out. And I think that, I think for some people, stuff like this will help, just like getting outside your head and thinking about others. And other people might need, you know, to see a therapist regularly or need to get a medication. I just think it's a case-by-case yeah. thing. No, I think you're right. And, and I, know I, w- I would never be one to tell anyone, like, just do this. And just do it this way, Don't yeah. worry about seeing a doctor. Yeah. No. Like, do what you need to do to make yourself healthy. And two, I think there's power in the fact that you listen to, like, a prompting, whatever this aha moment you had, you listen to it that, and you recognized, I'm into me. It's not a selfish thing, but... It, when you're depressed, you get into yourself. If there's a way I can get out of myself, and then you found a way out that works with your world. Let's uh, take a break. We're speaking with Christina Kuzmich. You can go to her website, com, and check out her wonderful website there as well. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey, helping us understand uh, the value and the worth of a soul. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Our guest today is Christina Kuzmich. She is uh, a blogger, has a wonderful um, website, ChristinaKuzmich.com. She's also a speaker and a YouTuber. Uh, The Huffington Post referred to Christina's videos as parenting comedy at its finest. The Inquisitor praised her for her witty charm. And we are telling you, she's the bomb mom. And we appreciate you, Christina. Thanks so much for being here. 
Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. This uh, when the I think guess the key to what I see in your work is it's you're just real. Struggles are inherent in life and parenting um, and marriage. How do you? What are some little guides or some tools that you give to to not be taken, uh, you know, to not be swept away in life? Um, I think the main thing is just realizing you're normal. I mean, I I think we all feel these things. I mean, every single human goes through these things of feeling guilty or oh, I don't want anyone to know that I had this thought or I don't want anyone to know that you know I didn't make a home cooked meal seven days in a row, whatever. And we just, we lay in bed at night and we literally just beat ourselves up over all the things we didn't do and all the things we feel bad about. And so I always tell parents, you know what? You're so busy focusing on the things you didn't accomplish that you forgot to focus on the things you did accomplish. So why don't you write those down, right? I mean, even the general stuff, like I kept my kids alive today, you know? (laughs) Nobody died. Yeah, my house is still standing. You know, I didn't get arrested today. I mean, even the funny stuff, like whatever it is, just just write down, even if they're silly and they just make you laugh, or like real accomplishments, because we're, this is what I always tell people, we are our worst abusers. I mean, yeah. we really are. If, I would never, ever talk to my friends, my loved ones, the way I sometimes, you know, inwardly, my mind, where my mind goes, talk to myself. I would never be that mean to somebody else. And so I tell people, treat yourself the way you would treat your best friend, like whoever you adore the most in the world, your child, whoever. Treat yourself the same way. So when those thoughts creep up, you know, if your friends were saying that about themselves, you'd be like, that's not true. You're amazing. You're great. We, we treat ourselves the worst. And so we've got to start focusing on the positives and the accomplishments daily, even if they're tiny accomplishments, instead of beating ourselves up. Mm. And how do you not lose your worth, right? I mean, that, the article, Broken But Not Worthless, what advice do you get? I mean, because we attach our worth to so many things like you're talking about, like being the perfect mom or having the perfect lunch or having the perfect outfit. And these are all things you kind of debunk in your program, yeah. I mean, in your, on your site. How do we not attach our worth to something that's going to, you know, disappear, and instead, what do we attach it to? Well, here's what I always say. You know, I, you got to think what matters long-term. And whether I have the nicest house or the best hair or the whatever really does not matter long-term. And also, I always say, you know, what gives me... I've never done drugs. I've never been, even been interested in doing drugs. Yeah. So I always think what my high in life has been doing for others. It literally gives me a high. And I always tell people, if you are stuck on, oh, this is bad and this is bad, it's just like, you know, when I did those Wednesday night dinners with my kids and we still do various different versions of things, that is that is that thing that's going to make you go, wow, my life is worth something. The minute you give outside yourself, if you are just obsessed with, again, your own life being perfect and your kids being perfect, and it's, it's all about you. And the minute you turn that around and go, no, I'm going to make it about somebody else. I'm going to go, you know, a video I just made recently is called Try This With Your Teen. And it's this, you know, because parents ask me for activities with kids. Yeah. One of my favorite family activities. And you can even do this on a date night. It doesn't have to be with your kids, but I love doing it with my kids. We'll get in the car. And we have absolutely no plan. And I'll say, okay, we have two hours to complete three random acts of kindness with literally no plan. And now the kids are having a brainstorm as we're driving around, you know, and we'll see a, in the video I give the example, we see a laundromat. And my son, the first time we drove by one, my son said, oh, my goodness, I totally take the fact that we have a washer and a dryer in our house for granted. Let's <laughs> go over there and let's, you know, 
bless someone with some quarters. And so we did. We got a bunch of quarters, and he walked up to this lady and handed her a bunch of quarters. I mean, she started crying over quarters, you know, something that we didn't even think was a big thing, but it meant a lot to her. You know, just so just driving around and finding these random ways, and they don't all require money. Right. Now, one thing was we went into a parking lot that was just covered with shopping carts because people didn't put them back, and we thought, let's help these employees out. We took every single one of those carts back where it belonged. I mean, just, but I'm telling you, like, even my kids, because kids also get very self-consumed, especially in their teen years. Mm-hmm. I mean, they come back, and my kids are like, oh, my gosh, that was so fun. When are we doing it again? Because it's just giving of yourself and thinking of others is such a high. I mean, it is like the best way to sort of feel worth something, right? Because you are doing something good for others. Mm, so true. I mean, it really, and again, it's... It's just I always call it arrows out versus arrows in. When we are yeah. when we're anxious, we go arrows in. We worry about us. When we're depressed, we get go arrows in. Anytime you can direct those arrows out of us, it's, it, there's power there. Talk about um, your your marriage, your husband, because I mean, a lot of times life throws you a curveball in our marriages and our relationships. Things don't turn out the way we had dreamed. It's not the fairy tale. Then we feel alone and and broken, but also, like you said, it became the moment, um, this became a really defining moment for you as you were able to figure your way out of this. What is it, how does bringing now uh, your husband into your life, how has that changed it? And I mean, instead of just making life easier, it's complicated it, I'm sure, and enhanced it. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think with marriage, it's like we just got to accept that nobody's perfect. We're not perfect. They're not perfect. You know, and I think we, you know, sometimes I hate all those Disney movies because they give kids an idea that life is a fairy tale and it's not. But I also think I think the problem is that we want marriages to be good just by being good without our us actually having to put much effort into it. It's like. You know, we want we want romance and excitement and all this stuff in, in marriage to just show up like like you order it on Amazon Prime and a box arrives and you open <laughs> it and all of a sudden, oh, here's the fun Dang, and the romance. There it is. You know, it's like we get lazy. We don't want to work at it. And so um, I think because I've gone through a divorce and, you know, a bad marriage, I probably have a different perspective where I appreciate more, you know, the things that maybe I would overlook. Yeah. You know, I hadn't gone through that. But um, I think it's all – I think – we have so much power to create the kind of marriage we want. And, you know, we just, my husband and I do a lot of, you know, we always think like, okay, am I treating my spouse the way I treated them when I first liked them? Because we don't, you yeah. know, we, we get over the newness, you know, the, everything new is fun, right? It's like a new car. We love the smell of a new car. We're so excited. Three years later, it's like, oh, it's just a car. You know, we love the smell of this new person we're dating. And five years later, what, why do you smell so bad? And it's like they, their smell hasn't changed. You know, right. it's just that our we've changed the way we perceive things. We've taken them for granted. So to me, it's all about remembering like, OK, how did I treat you when we first got together? And am I still treating you with that same awe and love and respect and kindness? Again, and it's just, doing it right. And, and yes seeing it and then needing to do it. And here's the thing. We actually get more out of it when we put work in. It's like anything else. The things you work for, you appreciate more. So if you're working at your marriage and you're really putting in the effort and, you know, you're both working through problems, you're going to appreciate it more because it's something you worked hard to create, this partnership, this family. So true. And, And yet we expect it to be natural, flawless, easy. It should just come natural, like childbirth. Yeah, I mean, it's... And again, that's the problem, even with whether it's marriage or 
parenthood, right? We just think it's just going to happen and everything's going to be perfect. And it's not. Life is hard. I mean, that's the truth. Life is hard. And if anybody tells you it's not, they're lying to you. I don't believe that. (laughs) I believe that every single person struggles. There may be huge struggles. There may be tiny struggles, but we all struggle. And if we only see our spouse or our children, just as human beings, just like us who are going to, you know, have bad days, who are going to mess up, who are going to be insensitive sometimes, then we can give them more grace and be more forgiving because we're not, we're not putting this expectation of perfection on them. So true. Christina, thank you. Uh, awesome, awesome insight. Christina Kuzmich is her name. Uh, go to her website, ChristinaKuzmich.com, K-U-Z-M-I-C.com. Christina with a K. ChristinaKuzmich.com. Awesome stuff, folks. Again, it's you. It's it's each of us. We are the we're the change, and our direction matters. The direction that we we place our attention, our focus, it matters, and people matter. And get out of yourself and serve. I know it's hard. It's not the end all be all, but get the help you need as well. And let's maybe sometimes serve our way out of this. Broken but not worthless. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back. Caitlin Thomas will be joining us, giving us some insight as well. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Caitlin Thomas, who has graduated from Brigham Young University and uh, is now looking for a job. So if you have a job for Caitlin, one eight five five chat byu She's one of our great producers. <laughs> and uh, today she's talking about moms. You know, we celebrated Mother's Day Sunday, the day we all get together to thank our moms for doing everything that they've done for us. I don't think there's ever enough to just say it out loud. You know, there's more moms need than just, hey, good good one, mommy. They've been sacrificing forever. They've dedicated their lives. So today, Caitlin is going to, I guess, help us. Yeah. Thank our moms. Thank our moms. Well, and I was looking up some, like, famous moms. Yeah. And there's some pretty cool things that moms, women, I mean, they're women, but they were moms when they did these cool things, which yeah. makes it because being a mom is a full-time job. Yeah. And it's, then you got to add, you know, some moms work, they go, they have a career, some moms don't, they stay home. Right. Either way, it's like, moms are incredible. Like, can you imagine being married to <clears throat> Jeff and I, or either of us, and have a full-time job, and the children, and still have to deal with us? Exactly. So that's the thing, is like, my mom, my whole life, she's, I mean, she is super. She would go to work, she would wake up early, so that she could do a load of laundry, <sighs> Get us ready. Make sure we all had packed lunches, got us breakfast, you know, got us to school. And then she would go to work all day and then the carpool would pick us up and then she would come Mm -hmm. home and take care of us and cook dinner, take care of my dad and do the whole thing all over again. I don't know. And again, you do it again tomorrow. I know. It's amazing. It's incredible. I was thinking um, women like J.K. Rowling. She's one of my favorites, right? She's one of my heroes. But she was a mom when she was almost completely broke. I'm not really sure what happened, but she wasn't. The, the father wasn't around. Yeah. I don't really know the whole situation. But she was fairly broke, and she had all these kids that she was trying to take care of. So she was doing all these odd jobs and really couldn't live her dream of writing this book. She wrote the first chapter of Harry Potter on a napkin while she was at a cafe. 
And that's what they turned in, and that's how she ended up getting published. But, like, she worked really hard. And, Unbelievable. Yeah, like, she just so, like, in our, her spare time. Our last guest, maybe you need, the, you need the difficulty that creates the determination, right? It makes you decide if you're really going to offer your greatest offering. J.K. Rowling pulls out a napkin and starts writing right, it on a napkin. Writing. You know, like, it's incredible that her brain could even still think yeah, after, <laughs> that creatively after yeah. all the other stress And the fear. And uh, right. You wonder how many masterpieces have been lost right. because of, you know, the anguish of having to just make of, it like, through life. like, a real life. life. Right. So she's pretty much a super mom. That's and cool. Now she's kind of like a mom to all of her fans. She donates a lot of money and helps a lot of people. So it's pretty cool. There's this other lady. Um, her name's Candy. Cool. Candy. Candy Lightner. In 1980, a hit-and-run drunk driver killed one of her 13-year-old twin daughters, oh, Carrie, because the driver had had three prior convictions for drunk driving and had been arrested two days prior for a different hit-and-run. Oh, boy. So within a few months, Lightner founded the Mothers Against Drunk Driving to try to end drunk driving, pass tougher legislation, and help the victims of drunk drivers. That's cool. So she's the lady that started um, MAD, or Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which is pretty incredible considering the really awful thing that happened to oh, her. yeah. And women and moms, I just moms are just so compassionate and forgiving like moms are the first ones to forgive people that wrong well depends yeah but in, in these some she could have been angry she could have been mad but and said she took all of that and she, she turned it into an organization she got organized helping thousands of people every well day. think of how many thousands of lives have been saved and just the awareness about right driving, driving. under the influence or while and now, it's, now we have programs in schools it's cool so, really cool. Some awesome moms and then really quick for you and I just want to plug in my mom your mommy what's her full name Jennifer. Jennifer I, Thomas. I've met Jennifer. She's an amazing woman. She is. And you know what? She she deals with a lot. She's got four kids. Oh, and one of them's difficult. Me. <laughs> I wasn't even talking about that one. <laughs> um, yes, you. And she's sacrificed all of her kind of, not her dreams and stuff because her dream was being a mom, but a lot of her talents and a lot of her hobbies. Her talent and her hobby is now coming to watch her kids do their talents yeah. and their hobbies and yeah. driving us everywhere. And she's the mom that, you know, says, hey, mom, mm-hmm. we don't have a ride to the movie theater. She'll take us. Hey, mom, I don't have a ride home. She'll bring us all home. Um, she's the mom who always has food in the pantry for my friends. Everybody wanted to come to my house because my mom, if she knew friends were coming over, she'd throw a plate of nachos into the oven and cook it for everybody. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like she's she doesn't really even ask twice. She's had multiple different people who have been friends with me and my older sibling. Yeah. Um, come in and out who were kind of uh, hooligans, and she's taken them in and kind of become their, really, their second surrogate mom. mom. Yeah, yeah, and like, and she's helped um, them get into college. My one, he's quote unquote my older brother, actually just graduated from the police academy. Oh my heavens! Ago, and he gave a lot of that credit to my mom because he's married now and has this amazing wife. But he said like I wouldn't have even been in a place to marry this woman if hmm. it hadn't had the you know second mom that totally. I had to take care of me. So I just want my mom to know she's a super mom. She's a superhero. I'm sure that your mom's a super My mom's mom. a superhero. My mom is hanging out in San Francisco loving life right now. Good for her. She deserves it. She totally does. I exhaust her. <laughs> I really do. But when you think about your mom, um, it's interesting. The older you get, the shorter this opportunity to be with your mom is, right? I so know. it's like it gets scary because you start, you're young still, so you've got forever. But at my age, it's like, you know, I could have died of pancreatic pancreatitis. You know, I could have right. I could have kicked the bucket a week ago. Well, and you just never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I look at all of a sudden, like, the older I get, the more I start to realize that things, 
you know, I've had people get in car wrecks and they survive oh. miraculously. But, you know, there's small things like that every day. So just Take care tell your, your mom, mom your lover because I don't think moms get enough credit. I think you're right. And let's hold them up as heroes that they are. They are. And don't demean their their position as a mom. Like That's it's right. probably the greatest thing that a woman could do if they the choose greatest. to do, you yeah. know. And I love my mom. I love you, mom. She's great. She's lucky to have you. You're lucky to have her. I We're am. lucky to have you for a little bit longer. I only have a few more of these till the end of this month. Caitlin Thomas is her name. If you have a job for her, one eight five five chat BYU. She's not only our great producer, she's our great charity. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, townies, from Townsend Abbey. Actually, I may have to get rid of Townsend Abbey on uh, my SimCity because... Instead, let's just do the radio show. We'll make this my village. Town, 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 town. What's wrong with maintaining town, your city? Town, it's just a lot of work. Town, You're just town, sitting there. You're not. No, I got to make donuts. I got to make milk. I got to make all these silly things. You that... already made the donuts. So part you of remember the... that old commercial? Yeah, you got to go make the donuts. Part of the game is you have to go around and tap each of these buildings yeah. so that it'll, it'll yeah. make it shake happen. it out. Right. Okay. Huh. So instead, I need to. We either need to hire a producer to do it. Well, we or have plenty. We can just, just let it go. Do you just think? Let it go. Do you think management here would have a problem if you nah. had one of the producers play a video game for you? No. Okay, we'll do it. It's part of the show. Well, it's not. It can't be Kiko because no. we've. He's busy at work on that. He's cooking it. Cooking with Kiko uh, is has about a one in fifty shot of making it to air. If we go by the jingles that were produced, yeah. Yeah. I think it would have had a better shot if the jingles had just been a little better. What if the jingles came after we figured out what the actual show was going to be? That's a good point. That might work, but come on, you didn't even like this one. Cooking with Pella Kiko and Matt Townsend. It's nice. Not liking that one. Again, I just don't like her voice. Yeah. Who says it's a she? It's a little hollow. Oh, it's a she. Hmm. I mean, listen to it. It's a she. Um, we've got a great show today. We, we, this is going to be a very interesting discussion. Is pornography addictive? Right. And what happens, because the debate is out there. And how you so if you have someone in your life in your world that is uh, that is partaking and participating and using pornography in a way that you don't like it, it doesn't jibe with your value system. How are you supposed to approach it? Because how you approach it will determine in a in a high likelihood how this all plays out. Their ability to fix the problem, their ability to stop. Because a lot of times we end up shaming people. We call them addicts when they may not be addicted. They may just – it's just kind of a natural thing that's happening. And so how do you handle that? And instead of shaming them, the shame actually perpetuates more use. So hmm. we'll talk about it with Dr. Ryan Willoughby. Some pretty cutting-edge research um, 
here out of Brigham Young University. And it's making a lot of – it frustrates a few people because a lot of people just are trying to fear and, and terror and create terror in the minds of parents that your kids are going to be porn addicts. This is – and all of a sudden we're getting some research that you got to be careful. Got to be careful because shame and anxiety are two of the big drivers of porn use. And so – Interesting study coming up. We'll get to that fun, interesting topic. Plus, of course, BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. We'll find out what's coming up on their show. And um, I did you hear about the coach for the Cavaliers? The the no no for the Warriors, who um, Brown? He is he's filling in. Yes. Did you hear about how he got in trouble with police? What did he do? Well, he was driving his Range Rover to the stadium. Uh huh. Or the arena, and behind him was the Spurs bus, oh. and he had a police escort. Right, and they were both going to the same place. So he didn't get out of the way. He didn't get out of the way, <laughs> but cops won't have that. No, get out so of the way. So they got him out of the way, and then he was terrified. <laughs> like, oh, sure, because it almost turned really ugly. Yeah, that's funny. And he's like, "I'm a coach. I'm coaching he the goes, team. We're going to the same place." I don't we're, care. We're going to destroy them tonight by 30 points. Yeah. He didn't say that, yeah, but didn't they say did. That. But yeah, that was obvious, right? So, uh, well, anyway. because maybe they cheated and hurt their other player. And, and it reminds me of times that, you know, we've had some stories with BYU Sports Nation where they had cops follow them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll get to some of those fun stories straight ahead. Plus, of course, other headlines as well as a, a coach or a, a hero of the day. We've got to get to our hero of the day. All of this straight ahead. But first, Let's get to the uh, the headlines, things we need to worry about. Terry, what's going on? When it comes to infrastructure, China is the go big or go home mindset. The nation that once built a 13,000-mile wall and constructed a hydroelectric dam so massive that it changed the rotation of the earth has now proposed an enormous global road that would connect 65% of the human population. The intercontinental network of land and maritime corridors would cost more than a trillion dollars and would link more than 68 countries and a quarter of the world's GDP. Wow. If the project is realized as envisioned, much of the world's trade would be linked to the Chinese economic strategy, or as a European official put it to the Wall Street Journal, it's about selling their stuff. So China, China's behind this. They're, they're trying to build this highway. And it's... and. And it starts in China. It goes all over Europe. The really? map is crazy. It's all over the place. And as it says, 68 countries would be linked by this corridor. And it's all about, let's you know, you yeah. heard of the Silk Road yeah, back yeah, in yeah. Uh, you know, ancient yeah. times where they were able to have trade. But that's like people walking across multiple continents. But this it, is getting, you know, have yeah. a road. I mean, we, is it roads we need? I mean, it uh, they seems wanted, like we need rails. Well, they could do that too, but they're looking hovercraft. At, they're looking at setting this up, and they're going like bridges over water, and just going all Man. out to link up their economy okay. with the rest of the world. So there's that story. A majority of U.S. Tro- uh, troops discharged from the military for misconduct during a four-year period ending in 2015 had been diagnosed with mental health conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury. A new study found the report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office will likely add to scrutiny over whether the U.S. military is doing enough to care for troops identified with mental health issues during their services instead of simply casting them out. 
the GAO analyst uh, showed that 62% of the 91,000 service members discharged for misconduct during the fiscal years of 2011 through 2015 had been diagnosed with the previ- within the, the previous two years with conditions including post-traumatic or traumatic brain injuries. Hmm. So they have this condition, and they're being kicked out of the military for misconduct. Is there misconduct caused by this other Traumatic issue? brain injury, sure. And so there In fact, are, I'm speaking to a group tomorrow night of uh, post-traumatic brain injury, TBI couples. It says uh, 23% of service members received an other-than-honorable discharge, which made them potentially ineligible for health benefits from the Departments of Veterans Affairs. Hmm. And then they have these pre- they, they have these conditions they got while serving, yeah. and now they can't be treated for them because they were discharged. Well, and then what, do, what happens when you find out, like, somebody like Hernandez, the football player's murder spree, was caused by major brain traumas and major brain injuries? I mean, this is... We're finding out a lot more about this as right. we go. Absolutely. In other news, ESPN has tapped Beth Mowens to, count, to call the second part of the season opening Monday night football doubleheader in September, making her the first woman to do play-by-play duties on an NFL game in 30 years. The network says Mowens will team up with former NFL coach Rex Ryan when the L.A. Chargers visit the Denver Broncos September 11th. Mowens joined ESPN in 94 and has called college football for the network since 2005. She's also done play-by-play for local broadcasts of the Oakland Raiders, so she has a lot of experience. Hmm. And ESPN is doing this. The last woman was a woman named Gail Sirens. In 1987, she did a uh, NFL game on NBC. But And did the play-by-play. Yeah, and, and nothing. The game uh, happened. Nobody died. Uh, no one died, so it's okay for women to broadcast games. Yeah. Even though she's going to be criticized and She'll be, yeah. Twitter's going to go and nuts. And for some, it just doesn't feel natural, but then just accept it, let it in for a while, and right. it'll become natural. Right. Also, last night, the NBA draft lottery was held. The Celtics have the first pick. The what Lakers the? get the second pick. The fix is in. The fix is totally in. Right. The Jazz needed that lottery pick. They weren't in the lottery. I know. Yeah. What a ripoff. What a ripoff. And finally... There was once a time when rompers were considered a fashion faux pas, but apparently not today. What's a romper? It's kind of a where your shirt and your shorts are all the same piece of fabric and buttoned up and something little kids wear. Really? Yeah. Look up romp him. I don't feel like I should. It's it's a brand name of the romper. It's a they're calling it a fashion revolution. Okay. It's a Kickstarter. From the uh, AC, it's ACE, A-C-E-D Design, a team behind the new clothing. They, uh, they're, they're, they're asking people to jump into jumpsuits. It's apparently a result of some soul-searching about men's fashion, according to the company's Kickstarter. Everything is either too corporate, too fratty, or too runway, or too basic, the site says. Some, something was missing, and that's where we came up with the idea of the romp him. So instead of romp her, yeah. they call it a romp him. Okay. It looks so you, like either undergarments or swimwear from the nineteen yeah. twenties. Right. Okay, yeah. It's like your shirt it's and like your a, shorts are all the same it's fabric. It's like jammies. It's like a jammy combination that you put my, your kid to bed my, in the summer. My seven month old daughter mm-hmm. wears these and that's because we have to change a diaper and so there's easy access. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's snaps and well, all that. Well and kind she of stuff, can right? pull it off. She's gorgeous. And so but I can't yeah. imagine Jeff and I in these. Uh, with nearly a month left on the Kickstarter, to. Ace Design has raised nearly $50,000 from almost, almost 500 backers as of Tuesday morning, smashing its goal of $10,000. 
Uh, they have an ad that's uh, allegedly humorous in some way. Huh. Um, it better be. So they say, we promise that once you put it on, the romper, you won't want to take this thing off. You won't be able <laughs> to take this thing off. Why? Well, it doesn't look like it's – I mean, there are some buttons up top. Yeah. Well, they are look, They look like they're having fun. This guy's on the shoulders of another guy, and they're having fun. I don't doubt they're comfortable. It just looks like jammies, really. This is what you right. put your kid to bed. It could be the fashion statement of the summer, Matt. Okay. Well, that's not happening. Really? It's just I can't imagine wearing that. I won't be making that statement. The link's on our Twitter feed if you want to look at it. That's one statement I will not be making. Hey, did you hear this story of a – so a thief steals a stroller. Hmm. And, um, but it's not any stroller. It's not? Is it? Or it's, is that a different story? No, I, I, I can't tell because I can't turn this thing off here. Uh, so this happened here in Utah. Oh, right. This is a different story. And the security footage shows that a Utah man shows him stealing a package from a family's front step. Okay. And they and he runs away, and it's a stroller yeah. in a box that they had just, I guess, had he, sent from he Amazon. He just saw the package and decided to steal it, yeah. The man is then seen getting out of a silver car, stealing the package, and a day later... A woman is seen in a second video returning the package. She felt bad. And it's it's one thing if you steal a stereo or something. Nobody knows why, but the woman returned it. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah, we're not doing this. We're not taking it. This is for a baby. We're not doing that. Or maybe they stole a better one. Right. Who knows? Maybe they're trading up, yeah. They were in uh, Walt Disney World, there was a a case over the weekend. Somebody stole a $10,000 stroller. What? A family brought a $10,000 stroller. Well, first off, they purchased a $10,000 stroller. That was mistake number one. And then they took it to a public place like Disney World where you just jam them in with all the other strollers right in the middle of the walkway so no one can actually move around the park. And then you expect it to be there when you came back. For $10,000, that thing better come with like a gold uh, chain. Or yeah. some you know? sort of like keyless entry system so you can right. lock the thing up. You beep it as you walk away. Or... Oh, yeah. Beep, beep. Yeah. Mm, that would be nice. Maybe it's electrified somehow. Well, these new strollers, because I was playing grandparent uh, last weekend, I we couldn't figure out how to open it. Yeah, yeah, they all collapse and everything. Yeah. So we just ended up carrying her for about three miles. For $10,000, that thing better change your baby for you. <laughs> right. You know what? Maybe now what you need to do is not even get a baby, just get the stroller. A lot of them have cell phone chargers on them now, mounts for your phone, all that kind of stuff. And you can like Bluetooth connect to the the stroller, to your phone, all that kind of stuff. So there's a need for that? No, but they put it in because they're trying to justify the $10,000. I mean, it would be nice if you are going to go to the mall if you could just plug your phone in and charge it up. Seat warmers for the baby, that kind of stuff. I think when I was looking up pictures of romper men, Uh they were sitting in strollers. Could yeah, be they were sucking on bottles. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's exactly the outfit. If you're going to have a, a, a man playing a baby, he would wear that outfit with the bonnet yeah, and the romper. pacifier. That's exactly what he'd wear, yeah. Uh, personally, I'm not into the rompers, but I am a onesie man myself. Mm. I like the onesies. <laughs> Can you imagine if like that came back into style? Like a onesie for adults right. that you just wear out in public. I could see you doing it. Totally. You know, you have like a little sweater draped over your shoulder and the tennis racket on the other yeah. posing. and then your chubby little legs. I know that your headshots include at least one of those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, what's happening to this world? Okay, we will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about 
pornography addiction and uh, really how to handle it. You got to be so careful. Um, what we say, does addiction even exist? Is it real when it comes to pornography? Interesting insight from one of the lead researchers here at BYU on the subject. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. Brian Willoughby, one of our great contributors on the show. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and he has a website. Um, if you go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com. It's just a wonderful um, – it gives all of his latest research and a lot of his, his great insights. But uh, the thing about Brian – that we love on the show is he's he's he loves relationships, but he's also willing to maybe take on some of the harder issues that come up in the research. Brian, thanks for being here. Good to be here. So here's the question of all questions, because we've had it on the show. We've had people on the show that talk about pornography use and um, abuse, and they a lot of times will throw out there that pornography is an addiction. Right. Factual. It's an addiction just like alcohol, drugs, or anything right. else. Is that true? Yes, I believe that's true, that, that pornography certainly has the potential to cause what we call compulsive behavior, yeah. which means that I feel like I need to engage in it or I engage in it in an uncontrolled way. It starts to affect my sleep. It starts to affect my job performance, my relationships. There's a sense of loss of control um, where I start to engage in the behavior without thinking about it. I don't think about the consequences. Mm. It just kind of happens. Hiding it, spending yeah, a lot hiding, of money right. on it, all these things that right. you think are addic- yeah. like so, signs of addiction. So pornography is a process of behavior that certainly has that potential, like gambling, like some other behaviors we know. The issue with pornography, though, is how quick we are sometimes to label a certain um, type of behavior or a certain frequency of pornography as addiction. Um, very few people actually have a, a viewing pattern that we would say is consistent with pornography addiction, hmm. though oftentimes people will label it as pornography addiction. And that's where the problem starts to come into play. Now, it's interesting because um, you would almost think it's not a problem to label it as like more dangerous than it is. How could that be a problem? Like, it, But there is a problem. If all of a sudden you've – dabbled in pornography but you think you're now an addict right how what is what does that do to you right well any, anyone that's done any kind of clinical work as you know knows that labels are important right right as soon as someone labels themselves whether it's i'm depressed or i have an anxiety disorder or i have an addiction it changes someone's outlook towards that behavior it changes relationship dynamics it changes hope how you know changes hope it changes how they view intervention um, and so for some cases, right, so if I'm someone that, that truly has a compulsive problem with pornography, that label of addiction might be helpful, right? A lot of 12-step programs, yeah. that's the first step. I have right. to admit I'm an addict and that's going to you know, hopefully encourage me to get help and get some resources. But if I'm someone that doesn't really have a true addiction but I start to label myself as that, what can happen sometimes is, is it can create a lot more internal pressure for me, a lot more anxiety for me in my life than maybe something warrants. And, and not that it necessarily means that I should just dismiss it and say, well, this doesn't matter. But it starts to maybe exaggerate some of mm. those negative effects and what they are. Yeah. 
And then um, the weird thing about it seems like to me with pornography and the and it, it almost depends where you're coming from, right? Because if you're coming from a Christian ethic um, or cert, or just you know even a feminist ethic or every everybody sees pornography different, right? And some don't see it as problematic. They see it as additive to a relationship. Some see it as competitive in the relationship. Some see it as uh, destructive. Right. So maybe talk about the the paradigm we're coming into it, right? Because mm-hmm. the Christian ethic or even just conservative or faith, you know, based groups, right. they seem like they're the ones that are more likely to pin this on addiction right. than maybe some group that's like, hey – you know, boys will be boys, girls right. will be girls. Yeah. So, so what the research is is looking like it's telling us around pornography, and there, there's still a lot of debate in my field about what the research is telling us. But we have a couple meta analyses, which are kind of the big, nice yeah. studies of studies that are out there that, that have consistently shown pornography, on average, has a negative effect on people in relationships. But that effect tends to be pretty small. So it's, it's not a massive negative effect, but it does tend to trend in the negative direction: less sexual satisfaction, less relationship satisfaction more mental health problems, et cetera. But then what we see in the research is that that effect is heavily influenced by what you're talking about, which Mm. is, okay, what is my religious background? What is my moral perception of pornography? What is my gender, actually? Gender is a huge moderating factor here that looks like it changes the effect. What is my relationship status? What is my perception and view of pornography in general? So, So like you said is that for a lot of people, there is this kind of what is pornography just doing to me at the baseline? But then if I put moral objections to it and now I start to feel like there's a spiritual effect, that can change the effect of pornography in my life. Or as we were saying earlier, if I start to label it as an addiction, yeah. that will change the effect of pornography in my life. And one of the things you found um, that if people are faithful – so I guess if they have a faith tradition they believe in – a church mm-hmm. or tradition they believe in, they're more likely to actually label themselves as an addict mm-hmm. than those that don't have right. a faith tradition. Yeah, we, we found two things. We were looking at this kind of perceiving yourself as an addict and, and how that affects anxiety. And we found that first off, pornography use itself leads to that perception, which mm-hmm. makes sense. The more pornography you use, the more likely you are to think, I've got a problem. Right. But then the other one, as you said, that we found was religiosity, being a religious person, having a religious faith. And independent of how much pornography you actually view, that was also predictive of this perception. And so we were finding that people that were highly religious were very much more likely to label themselves as I have an addiction, regardless of how much they were viewing, whether it was every day or every other week, or every other month, they were still saying, I am an addict. And yet, they may not meet the criteria of an addiction. Right. But they feel, so then I would assume they feel the shame, the guilt, exactly. the, yeah. the, the, the anxiety, the anxiety behind it. Because particularly in religious communities, one of the things that feeds into this is that sex is generally a taboo topic anyway. Mm-hmm. And pornography is linked to sex. And so... I feel like I'm an addict. I feel like this is a big deal. And then I feel like I can't talk about it to anyone. Yeah. I don't who, feel who like do you I, tell? Can, because, I, can't, yeah. Yeah, I can't share it with anyone. I can't tell anyone. It's oftentimes, particularly for a lot of young adults, seen as this, you know, the worst black mark I can have on myself in yeah. terms of a dating market or a marriage partner is pornography. You know, that's right right there with infidelity, if not the totally. exact same thing. As well, I know people that ask that. Like they used to ask, so do you have a job? Are you are you making right. money? Now it's the first thing they're asking is, so have you had a pornography problem? Yeah. yeah, it's one of the most common questions I get from young adult students and religious students that I teach is, well, when, when should I ask? 
right? I, I have to like, ask at some point. It has to be asked. It so has when to be asked. When and how do I do bomb. it? Yeah. And it's, again, I guess that's more true in groups that have, that have higher religious affiliation. Right. Yeah. And, and usually what the problem is, is, it's kind of a multi-pronged issue, is a lot of religious faiths have moral religious teachings that pornography is wrong, yeah. um, which is perfectly okay. Um, but then what a community does with that sometimes is say, okay, I know that pornography is wrong for religious moral reason. And then I look to my community, and unfortunately, a lot of religious communities, not the religious leaders per se, but there's a lot of groups that start to say, well, we need to fight pornography addiction. And everything is addiction. Yeah. And so I start taking my religious teachings of pornography is wrong with my cultural terminology, which is porn is an addiction, without really proper education about what an addiction is. And I start to connect those two and say, okay, pornography is wrong because it's an addiction. All pornography is an addiction. Interesting. Yeah, you take that leap. Yeah. And then and then there's the emotional leap that if you think somebody's doing something immoral, you know, totally against your value system and addicted, you're so not attractive to me. So then there's it's almost a shunning, it's a subtle social mirror that yeah. something's wrong with you. But then one of the things I know you've brought up before on the show, one of the drivers of pornography use is anxiety and right. shame. Yeah. And so it actually perpetuates itself. Right. Yeah. If, if I don't feel like there's anyone I can share or talk to or, or work with me, you know, a lot of people use pornography as a mood regulator. Yes. Yeah. When I get stressed out, when I get sad, when I feel lonely, I turn to pornography. Well, if then I feel bad about my pornography use and I don't have anyone to turn to, that can lead to a negative cycle. And that's actually what can lead sometimes to that compulsive use. Interesting. And then that throws everything underground. Now I've got to hide it. Yep. Which then perpetuates more mm-hmm. – Shame because right. I'm now I'm really addicted because yeah. I'm hiding it. Right, exactly. How interesting. And so why I think this is so important, and we'll take a break and come back and have you answer it for us, is we, if we want to help, if you believe strongly that we shouldn't be participating in this and pornography, then we need to help people out of it. But how we talk about it, label it, brand it, handle it will determine how we can get them out of it. Mm-hmm. And we might actually be doing – more harm than good in just labeling them a deviant than than somebody that's, you know, struggling with something. So we'll take a break. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby, again, associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Go check out his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. We'll be right back. the Matt Townsend show. You know, um, pornography use, it's there. It's even it's more and more accessible to our kids, to our families, to our spouses. It's not just a thing that men do anymore. Women are also involved in pornography use as well. And um, joining us to talk about the impacts and really how to go about working on it, talking to the people we love about it and and hopefully helping them heal through it. Instead of just labeling them, uh, is Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's also um, 
uh, soon to be – he's an author of many, many articles, but also a book coming out. What are we calling the book again? The Marriage Paradox. The Marriage Paradox. And uh, today he's talking about the pornography paradox. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's damaging. It's, so what, we're, what you're saying is it doesn't – we don't have any research that's necessarily that shows it's healthy for relationships. Overall, it probably – is not good for relationships mm-hmm. overall, but more importantly than the porn use itself, it's really the labeling and the shame that goes on behind it that is probably right. more destructive to the yeah. relationship. Yeah. It's, right now, most of our dialogue on this particular issue is very black and white. It's yeah. either people would argue that pornography, like you were saying earlier, is healthy and good yeah. and it's going to help with a couple's sex life, or it's an ad addiction, 100%. It's just like crack cocaine. It's changing your brain chemistry. Right. And there's no dialogue in between, which which to me is, is the problematic piece of this, is that, yes, there are, as we were saying earlier, certain people that are struggling with very compulsive, out-of-control use that need help, like gambling addiction, a lot of those right. other things. Not a very big percent of the population. My, my data and other data is, people's data suggests about 10% maybe hmm. of the population. And then you've got this this huge group, which, like you said, Research is, is suggesting there's a negative effect on the relationships, on them individually, but they're not necessarily porn addicts. And we don't have much yeah. ability to talk about that middle place right now. There are not a lot of resources available, which is important because in that group, communication is such a key part of what intervention should probably look right, like. Right, right. Would it be different if it wasn't um, – what if it wasn't pornography? It was just marijuana. Because in a way, that's not a gender issue. So it seems like the mere fact it's pornography brings in different gender beliefs, mm-hmm. stereotypes, issues, right. fears, insecurities. Yeah. And like I said earlier, it's about intimacy, yeah. which is a little bit it's different. Always, it's yeah, not it this is. outside it's substance. N- uh-huh. It's connected to the intimacy in the relationship and the emotional boundaries in our relationship that feel like they're violated sometimes. And this tests it. So if you don't have closeness, if you don't have the skills and the ability to talk through stuff, then you'll just get into your ugly patterns. Right. On this issue. Right. Exactly. And, and for a lot of women in particular, there's definitely this sense of my, my male partner is looking at these women that don't look like me and yeah. don't act like me. And so what does that mean for our relationship? Right. Plus, too, for the part for the for the user of pornography, they they've got to be looking at like, why am I looking at this? So it's, it's, it's really got to be opening up a lot of complicated right. questions. Yeah, it is. Which is why communication, again, is uh-huh. so important. And unfortunately, we don't have that for a lot of couples is this is something that's hidden. It's something that's not talked about. Or if it is, it, it becomes this kind of jury trial for the for the person using is, well, tell me how many times, tell me exactly yeah. what you saw, and you better never, ever do it again. That's right. And they're, they're, again, they're, it becomes such a conflictual relationship. And I, I've seen this many times in couples that I've talked to where the person that's using will do that disclosure. There'll be this huge blow up around it. They'll get past it. And the person that's using will, will tell me, oftentimes in private, I'm never going to tell them again. Yeah, I can't tell them. If that. I have any kind of slip up, I'm, I, I don't want to go through that. Yeah. I'm just going to deal with it on my own. And, and then there's always the – and then because they don't share, the other partner's like, he never tells me what's going on. I don't know if I trust him or not. Right. And yeah. there's no closure. So it really is – it becomes an intimacy issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do if we want to make sure that we don't stigmatize it uh, but deal with it? Yeah. How, do we, how do we do that? So I, I think there's two levels. On the, on the general, more cultural level, there just needs to be more education about what is addiction, what is not. 
um, what the spectrum of use that we know exists. Um, we need to talk more about that spectrum. You know, what, what is it like on the far extremes? But again, what is it like in the middle for your average person that maybe says, you know, for, as we were talking about before, for a religious person that has moral objections to pornography, but maybe is struggling and having a couple slips up a year. Yeah. What are the resources for that person that they feel comfortable sharing? And, and what are some of the educational efforts and other things that we can do to help people like that, that are trying to avoid, um, which is more of a, what is more of a bad habit than any kind of real addiction. Um, and then two, on a personal level, really being more comfortable talking about this. That's the biggest thing people can work on is, do I feel comfortable talking to my kids, talking to my spouse, talking to my partner, my friends about pornography? Yeah. Do I feel open disclosing things? And that's kind of the other interesting thing about pornography is we know that exposure rates are essentially 100 percent. Yeah. Male usage rates in the last year are about 75, 80 percent. This, this is not something that few people are doing. This is something that almost every guy right. has dealt with at some point in his life. And so realizing that, can I be more comfortable talking to my male friends or talking to my, my, my peer network or my partners about not necessarily, you know, what is, do I have a history or not, but what is my history and how do I feel like it's affected me? So true. And I guess too, there's, um, like you said too, some people are trying to medicate themselves with it. And again, right. that, that, that it's, it's an important question. So what are you medicating? If it's anxiety, then let's get mm-hmm. you 50 other tools. Right. Yeah. And then – but you have to be able to talk about it and have someone you can keep – you want to keep it above the surface, right? Because right. the minute it's no longer safe, yeah. then we go silent, secrets, shame. Right. And get into and, that. And, and, then, into and that then, you, then you need to medicate your yeah. cycle. And that why is, is oftentimes really critical of the conversation. Why am I looking at porn? Like you said, is it an emotional regulation? Am I dealing with stress in my life, depression? Am I unsatisfied mm-hmm. in my relationship? And if I can start to identify the why am I going to this medium and then talk about, you know, if I'm unsatisfied in my relationship, well, I need to talk to my partner about that and figure out why and what's going on. How can we improve our relationship? If I'm dealing with a lot of stress and this is a stress outlet for me and I, I don't want to do it, what are some other ways that I can relieve my stress that might be more productive and healthy? For so me? as parents, I guess we should just be talking more openly about it, make sure we're not – how do we make sure that we don't just chalk it up to like you're just a deviant spawn of darkness yeah well what i always tell parents and again this is another common question i get is when when do i have the porn talk with my kids and i always respond the same way i say you don't have the porn talk with your kids and they look at me and say what 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 are you talking about i say no you you have an intimacy talk with your kids this can't be an isolated conversation where you're just telling your kids you don't ever look at porn there has to be this broader conversation about healthy sexual intimacy and what does that mean in the family? And how does that then to not connect to pornography? And if we have an objection as a family to pornography, hopefully we're saying it's because it's depicting this kind of intimacy. And we don't believe in that kind of intimacy. We want you to have this in your future adult relationships. Yeah. And that's why we avoid this. And it also has this potential to cause you know, compulsive use. And we don't want you to be involved in that either. Um, and so you have those ongoing open conversations that are not just about porn. They're about a broader sexual discussion that you're having with your kids. Um, and when you're open, and this is what I found with my children, when you're having those open, ongoing conversations over and over and over again, kids tend to be pretty receptive. To oh, that. yeah. They tend to be really open. And they, yeah, they, and they'll tell you more than you may want to know. Right. And yeah. more about what their friends are doing than you may want to know. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's something of that. Again, that's the paradox of it, right? It's, it's, it's for some, it's just you can't do it. We can't go there. You don't go there. That's not healthy. And there's a healthy side of it. And it can co. I mean, you got to have the whole conversation. Right. You yeah. can't just 
have one. It's interesting, too, how academically this becomes problematic because, you know, so many academics wouldn't even study pornography. Right. Let alone call it an addiction mm-hmm. or call it, a, you know, a pandemic, whatever they're calling it in right. s- certain states as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's it's hard, right? It's a hard balance. Yeah, it is. It's definitely an interesting area to be involved in. I'm glad you're in it, though, because, again, we wouldn't know that how you handle it perpetuates it, right? right. It's self-fulfilling, like you're mm-hmm. saying. Scary. Oh, Brian, you're a good boy. You've turned into such a good man. Thank Brian you. looks like he's 12, <laughs> and he's one of the best researchers at BYU. Super cool. Well, thanks, man. We're going to have yeah. to have you back. Brian Willoughby's his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, and he's back every couple weeks anyway. But we're going to address this more because we got to get the message out. Mm-hmm. It's normal, and you got to understand yourself. Right. And those you love. And why it bugs you and why you would participate. (sighs) Brian Willoughby, thank you. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, it's that time. It's that time when we get to go down and visit our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show in just 12 short minutes. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. What We're up? breaking down the 2020 BYU football schedule today on the show. It's going to be really? epic. Already? We, you joke. We did 2019 a couple days ago. Did you really? We're not doing 2020 today. No, you guys are like... like you're but getting... we're looking at it right now. <laughs> That's what we did. Is it a good... Is it a good Schedule? Oh, listen, listen, listen to the rundown. Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. At Utah, Michigan State in Provo. At Arizona State. At Minnesota, Utah State in Provo. At Boise State. <gasps> at Northern Illinois. Missouri in Provo. San Diego State in Provo. At Stanford. Oh, wow. What a great year. Yeah. Yep. Sheesh. Pretty the, good, right? The Barbara Walter year. Pretty good. <laughs> Babs. 2020, just right around the corner, Matt. 2020, just what, two years away? Yeah, forget the 38 games that BYU will play Before over the next uh, three years. You know, but. No, Compared to next year, or this next season, this season, what does this season look like? Oh, it's fantastic. Is BYU it better than has, last year? Yeah, BYU has really good home games. Utah, Wisconsin, Boise State. All in Provo this year. Oh, how fun. It's going to be great. But that's not the big news of the show today. What's er- the big news? Eric Mika has made his decision. He will go pro. Huh? Signing with an agent. He is not returning to BYU. What? So we will discuss what? both sides of this. Because there there's some people that are like, all right, good luck. Nice. Break a leg. I, I get it. And then there's the other side that's like, wait, what? Yeah. All this hype and everything, and BYU delivered zero postseason wins? Interesting. Eric Mika on the team? Like, that stinks, right? Eric Mika is so good. He's a very good player. So, from the BYU perspective, it's a real bummer he's going. Where's he projected to go? He's not. So, he'll just free agent No one has him getting drafted. Oh, boy. Not a soul. But he could sneak into the second round. He's he's not a first rounder, for sure. But he could sneak into the second round or play in Europe, play overseas. Hey, what is the deal with the Celtics? How unfair is that? 
They snuck in on the Nets. It's rigged, I tell it's you. It's totally rigged. And the Lakers are going to get LeVar Ball. <laughs> Danny Number Ainge. Two. Danny Ainge is in with the league, man. Danny Ainge is he's living right. It must be that. It's yeah, his you good think, living. You think the big baller brand's going to Los Angeles? Then Uh-oh. the big baller brand is living right, too? Like, what's the logic there? Hmm. Something's weird. Hey, okay. Th- I, I did see a story yesterday that it reminded me of you two. So hmm. do, do you know who Mike Brown is? Yeah. He's which, the, which Mike Brown? The coach of the coach uh, or of the, the interim, interim coach yes, of the interim Warriors? coach of the Warriors. <laughs> That's a generic name. Do you know uh, yeah. Pete Smith? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know John Smith. Steve so, Johnson? So Mike Brown was running a little late to the game last night. Did you hear about this? And yeah, I heard um, about this. he this got funny. he you know, he was he had some aggressive driving that he was doing. Uh-huh. And a bunch of cops, the Spurs bus was coming down. Greg Popovich was on it, I guess. Everyone was on it and um he wouldn't pull over for the bus that was being escorted by the <laughs> he's police. He's Mike Brown. He's Mike Brown. He's going to – He's hey, I'm going where this bus is going. Uh-huh. So just let me go. Anyway, the cops got him to pull over, and it created a little fiasco. That's it reminded awesome. me of you two. It reminded you of us. <laughs> like when you guys are always following Cosmo's van, thinking that you guys are going to get in. And we won't pull over. And you won't pull over. Wait, a cop pulled us over one time when we were trying to uh, do you remember? show at Lavelle totally. Stadium. You remember that? Yeah, it's because you guys were sleeping in the car, which was weird. Nope, nope, that wasn't it. No, that what were you doing in the car? That wasn't that time. Were you eating a Were you eating a cougar tail? No, we were doing a live show at Lavelle Edwards Stadium on a football game day, and they have the parking lots barricaded That's off. right. You moved the barricade. And we moved the barricade, and this cop... This BYU cop comes flying around in his undercover Toyota Corolla. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And what a life. pulls us over and comes up, and Jerem is like, I think you were uh, periscoping at the time when Periscope I was, was yeah. That's true. We were I remember, live on yeah. Periscope, and we're like, oh, we're getting pulled over. <laughs> did, did he tase you? No, but not, he, was, not this he was displeased for sure at the beginning. I'm like, look, we've got a show to do. Like, I wouldn't just move the barricade. I promise we do a show called BYU Sports Nation, and after a little, you know, coaxing, he was okay. But did yeah, did you have was, to show him video of the show? He was not pleased. That's We're like, bad. we are a highly rated BYU radio program. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, okay. How he's like, funny. you're not the Matt Townsend show, but yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I would have let what? Matt through in a second. <laughs> but you guys, you ruffians. You have a doctoral degree. Oh, listen, you would have had people moving the barricade. Oh, the cops would have been moving sure. the barricade for you, man. My chauffeur, hello. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, and then how bad would it be for Mike Brown that all of a sudden you get a phone call from Greg Popovich laughing at you That would be amazing. as you were stuck in your Range Rover? Yeah, that would be fantastic. Only Mike Brown is laughing at Greg Popovich now. Yeah, who's laughing now? Yeah, yeah, are yeah. doing some work, right? Yeah, right. Well, on... Kawhi yeah. Oh, on yes. Kawhi Leonard's ankle. Hashtag Zaza Pachulia. Yeah. <laughs> he got Zazad. Have you ever been Zazad? <laughs> I hate getting Zazad. I went. Oh, I was going to ask you. Oh, we don't have time. Tomorrow, I'll ask you about that two-step. How do you not defend that? Do you think that that was a dirty play? Mm, I think it was yeah. questionable. Do you, okay, so you think he intended to do it? Okay. Yeah. I just Absolutely. to me that's how I play. I don't. I just play like Zaza. Well, you're a dirty player. Yeah, so. don't yeah, get. You are no definitely surprise. a dirty player. Dirty player. All right. So what's on your show today, gentlemen? Eric Mika's decision. Mm. Both sides of that. Our opinions on that. Steve Cleveland will be in studio to b- break that down as well. Plus, we have the West Coast Conference Player of the Year in softball, Caitlin Larson Aldridge. She previews the Cougars tournament run in Pac-12 country.
And Brock Hale, the West Coast Conference Player of the Week from BYU Baseball after a dramatic home run that he hit last night and a one-run victory for the Batcats. Cougs are the baseball team's one win away from an outright conference championship. They've won Ooh. 13 of the last 14, headed to Spokane to try and close out an outright league championship. Like Eric Kamika did. Man. In terms of winning a game. Man. Not a league title. Yes. <sighs> that's, that's, a big, that's a big show, guys. a lot guys. going on. A lot going on. And who better to handle it than you two? Two ruggedly good-looking There's gentlemen. No and I've missed you. I haven't talked to you for a while, so it's good to hear you're it, still. It's good to have you back, man. Good, good to be good alive. To get the good to be kicking. switcher buttons yeah. put. We finally got the switcher <laughs> fixed. <laughs> Those darn switcher buttons. Hey, by the way, one of your commercials really made us laugh. Which one? Uh, some super official guy talking about going to the his house to get some frizz ends, or whatever it says. Oh, yeah. You, D- Diddy Dent- it? yeah, it's Diddy Dental. They're one of our sponsors. Diddy Dental. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Please, send, please send that to me. Is there, a, is there yeah. an audio wave file? Oh, for sure. We've got it. it. We'll it. send it to you. I yeah. want that one. AI Diddy Dental. Maybe, maybe, they could, maybe they could do promos on your show. Diddy Dental. Yeah. It's really good, you we guys. We don't hear the commercials. Well, we'll have to get you. We'll get you yeah. a whole... We've got a bunch of them. When you flizzash your smile for the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> See, you guys need that on your show. All right, guys. Have a good one. Uh, four minutes away. Four minutes away. And they're gone. Four minutes, folks. Sports Nation. BYU Sports Nation. Just get ready. It's going to... Uh, it's going to be so... It's going to be so good. I promise. Okay, a couple of stories I want to get to um, before... Just a little advice to you who, you know, if, you're, if your license plates are needing renewal, be careful. You know, it turns out that renewing your tag, you know, you got to use more than just a permanent marker. A Florida driver learned that the hard way this week when he was pulled over for trying to renew his own tag using a permanent marker. Florida Highway Patrol Trooper Steve Montiero made the traffic stop because he said something didn't look quite right about that guy's uh, sticker. Montiero said that he did not file a report for the offense. Instead, taking the man to jail, he allowed someone to pick him up. And uh, what they did instead is just uh, – he just had to pay a little fine. But you can't use a marker to design your own tag. Nice try. Well, at least to use a permanent marker. Yeah. Why? Because that meant it was going to be permanent? Yeah. Okay. At least it wasn't like one of those scented markers with oh, all the different characters those, on them. You remember those? Those are my favorite. Yeah. I love the good scented marker. Police remove an angry beaver that stopped traffic in Barrie, uh, Ontario. Mm? Mm? Police say officers had to remove the angry beaver that stopped the traffic of north in, uh, in near Toronto. They say they were called to the roadway around 9.30 p.m. Friday where officers had to use batons to coax the beaver off the road. I think this was Beaver Cleaver, wasn't it? Yeah, no, they, yeah, yeah. I think it was Stick It to Beaver, which is a different <laughs> uh, show because they had to, they had to use their their batons to beat the beaver off the road. Again, stopping traffic. They say the officers called animal control, then boxed up the rodent and released it back into the wild. How good is that? See, they're taking care of you up there in Ontario. Now, as we end the show, we'd like to end it with a hero story. And the hero today is a parent that's trying to erase all Seattle school lunch debt. We hear these stories often. Jeffrey Liu is a proud graduate of Seattle schools. And now that his son is a third grader, he was looking for a way to give back. He found out that some students struggle to pay for school breakfast and lunch, often not qualifying for the free meals. 
and therefore racking up debt with the school. Lou also heard the nightmare stories about some growing districts that have to throw away food uh, in front of students who can't afford to pay for their their past bills. So he basically paid a $97 debt off and some change for some of the students. By the way, after uh, that, he went on to pay off an additional $20,000, and now they're raising money to uh, pay off even more. So how cool is that? You see a need, you see a problem, and instead of just you know moving on, doing your thing, you make sure you take care of everyone along the way. That's the show. That's why we do it, to hopefully uh, let you see the good in the world and help you understand you're part of that good as well. We can't do it without you, so we'll be back again here tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern time. You can also find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on BYURadio.org. We're everywhere. Check us out. We'll be back tomorrow to make it another great day with you. Until then, let's take care of each other, and we'll talk tomorrow.